people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike Boyd. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Stashu. Trust the fungus, baby. We are looking at the 1993 film from directors Annabelle Jenkel and Rocky Morton, Super Mario Brothers. It's the story of two brothers, Mario Mario, played by Bob Hoskins, and Luigi Mario, played by John Leguizamo. They cross over from Brooklyn, USA, to another dimension ruled by the ruthless King Koopa, played by Dennis Hopper in an attempt to rescue Princess Daisy, Samantha Morton. Is the princess in another castle, or will they be able to rescue her and make some coin along the way? We will be spoiling this film as much as it can be spoiled, so if you haven't seen Super Mario Brothers, I guess check it out. Come back after you have, we will still be here. So, Chris, rather than asking you about the movie, I'm very curious, what is your experience with Mario, as in Mario Mario, as in the star of Super Mario Brothers, the game. As a child of the 90s, I theoretically should have grown up with a Nintendo in my house, but I didn't. My folks didn't want me to have a console, so anytime I ever played anything was over at somebody else's house. The Mario that I remember playing earliest was Nintendo, like the original Nintendo Entertainment Systems, Super Mario Brothers. And then I remember playing the Super Nintendo and Super Mario World, which is quote unquote what this is based on <laughs> whatever i okay but my experience with mario is very i would say very similar to a lot of kids from the 90s played a lot of n64 at kids houses if i did because i didn't have one played a lot of super smash brothers a lot of mario party a lot of mario 64 mario is something i still play today i have a nintendo switch 
I played the most recent Mario. It was okay, but I am a, as much as I love movies, I'm also a pretty big gamer as well. And Mario is something that I always make time for. Mario is a reliable quality game. And it's Mario is, I think, one of, if not the preeminent video game character of all time. You could probably make an argument, I would say, for a couple Pac-Man, Mario, Sonic, maybe Master Chief. But Mario, I think, is the, if you're talking video game characters, Mario is the preeminent video game character. Well, he's been around since 1985, yep. so decades. 80, decades 81, decades. technically, with Donkey Kong, but he wasn't referred to as Mario. He was Jumpman, but... Technically, still Mario looks like Mario, acts like Mario, jumps like Mario, has a hammer that Mario would end up using. So, Jumpman, but yeah, Mario 83, like the character named Mario. So, I grew up with an Atari 2600 and then moved over to a Commodore 128. So, I was doing computer based games on five and what, three quarter inch floppy disk. I never had a Nintendo. I would go over to my friend Jeff's house and he and his brother would play Super Mario Brothers or Mario Brothers, whatever that early incarnation was. The OG Mario game. This is probably 86, 87, something like that. And I'd pretty much just watch them play because when I would get behind the console, I would just completely fuck up and just jump right off the screen or something. So. <laughs> In college, we had a Super Nintendo that was brought up by my friend Jonathan. He and his brother went in on it, and he ended up getting it for a couple semesters. We mostly just played A Legend of Zelda and mostly Street Fighter Two on it. So I was pretty unfamiliar with Mario, but for whatever reason, years ago, I just fell in love with the soundtrack. I absolutely love all the music from the original Super Mario and just the underwater level, the cloud level, all of these different songs that they had. Just fucking amazing. Those four notes, beep, 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 beep. People know what that is, even if you don't play video games. When I was saying like Mario is so ubiquitous, you don't even have to say Mario. You just go do, 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 do. People like Mario. So I have been collecting Mario music for years. I never saw the film until we started talking about doing this episode. It played at the movie theater where I worked, and I swear I was still working there when it was out, because this came out May 28th, 1993. So it was probably I came home for a break from school and was working. And I remember, I don't remember when this movie opened, but I remember by the time I got there, it was already in Theater 5, which was one of the smaller houses. We had Theater 8, which was the big house. 1, 2, 3, and 4, which were the next size down. 5, 6, and 7 were the smallest houses. 7 was where movies went to die. But I think it was in 5 because I remember doing aisle checks on it and just saying, what the fuck is this, this whole thing? <laughs> The Goombas with the, or sorry, yeah, Goombas, the Goombas with the yeah. heads on the huge bodies. I'm just like, what the fuck is this thing? So you and Mario yeah. fans alike. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck is this thing? <laughs> I think it was because of the Morton Jenkel cut of the movie coming out. And I want to say it was you and I, Chris, talking about it. And then you were just like, I think I said we should do an episode on it. Chris, what was your experience with this film? 
I saw it in 06. I remember watching it with a friend of mine. Him and I, I think we're at Best Buy or something. And I saw it on the end cap. And I was like, oh, have you ever seen this? I had a couple friends growing up that I would watch movies with. And they would come over to my house and hang out. We would watch movies, like horror movies or stuff. We would go to this place called Movie Trading Co. sometimes. And just walk around and buy like $5 DVDs and watch it. Kid shit. Nerd kid shit. I remember the first time I watched this movie thinking this movie was the longest fucking movie I had ever seen. That's the only thing I really remember from the first time I watched it was we had some plans in the evening to go downtown Dallas to go to some concert. And I remember buying the movie and looking at it in the back and be like, we're not going to have enough time to watch this today. It's almost two hours long. I, and we we ended up watching it like in two parts. So I think we got to when they're dancing in the club and we paused it and then finished it from there. But it's a weird movie. And that's the thing for me on my show. We al- I always talk about when we used to do ratings, skip it or watch it. And I people would always be like, oh, if it's skip it, that must mean it's a bad movie. If you watch it, it means it's a good movie. It's like, not necessarily. For me, this is a interesting endeavor in filmmaking to do something very unique with a property that realistically could not be adapted until now. If you want to adapt it the way they're adapting it now, which is the admittedly almost lazy way, frankly, because it is a video game with animated characters and you are just going to make an animated movie that I can't play. Why would I watch your movie when I could just go play your video game that looks like your movie? This is one of the fucking strangest movies I've ever seen, not because it's actually that weird, but because what it is based on, if you showed someone this movie and somehow was able to take the names of the characters out, and ask them, like, what is this film based on? What person in their right mind would say, it's a Mario movie? Nobody, because it, it it doesn't act like a movie that you would expect this to be. It doesn't look like it. It doesn't sound like it. The actors aren't who you would even expect to be. But yet, in spite of all of that, it is a success. And I think it's a successful movie because it's just, just weird. One of the singularly strangest movies I've ever seen. But at the same time, at the end of re-watching it like the three times I did for this, I was super happy at the end of the movie at all three times. I wanted to see more. And there's the online webcomic and there's more to what happened after the movie, but I see why people didn't like it, but I think people didn't like it because it didn't meet the expectations of what they wanted. But to be fair, this is the first video game movie ever made. So they stumbled pretty hard, but video game movies suck for the most part. That's the other thing here that kind of I have a hard time kind of balancing is video game movies still for the most part suck. Counterpoint, Mortal Kombat. But Mortal Kombat's not a great movie. The first one. It were, it's better than most video game movies. I like it, but it, it's not like, I like it. It's fun. It's a fun movie, but it's not like an amazing movie. <laughs> but, but Super Mario Brothers, like, again, that's the other thing you have to take into account. It's the first one. So... It's the first one on the biggest property at the time. Even at the time, there's nothing bigger than Mario. I don't think there was any way this movie was going to succeed is what I'm driving at. So what about you, Mike, given that you've never seen this before? It took me a few watches before I realized, like I got some Wizard of Oz vibes the first time, but then when I rewatched it last night, I was just like, oh, this is totally wizard of oz even to the point where to make the jump boots work you click your heels basically yeah the whole thing we're going to this other land but there are there are weird beats to this movie 
you talked about how it felt like the longest movie ever made. And I can see that because of the, there's the end of the first act where you pop into the other dimension. But then as far as in between that and the final bit of it, the denouement, if you will, there's just so many beats going on in there. There's the introduction of Toad and then almost the immediate dispatching of Toad, though he becomes a Goomba. There's all of the stuff with the fungus. There's the whole thing of chasing the princess, but then the princess having another story on top of that and us being able to follow her and Yoshi and Daniela and this kind of stuff. And I never really just get a bead on who Mario and Luigi are. There's that strange thing of how Luigi has psychic powers. Like he can, oh, I'm going to make a turn here. I've got a good feeling about this. And the way that he watches like the psychic TV show and all this kind of stuff. And then Mario seems grumpy, but he's not an asshole or anything. Because there are versions of the script where like the very first one, it's this whole thing of like him being jealous of his brother that he had to like take care of his brother after their parents died and this whole thing of does he love his brother yes of course he loves him but he also resents him at the same time and then luigi's just this life spirit just oh very full of life all this stuff and it's like all right i don't really get that in this version of the movie i get a little bit of them but they almost feel more like Fred and Barney kind of thing. They don't necessarily feel like brothers to me. The problem with Mario in the video game, really, and in the movie, I think the movie, it's more successful than the video games. Mario is not a very well-characterized character in the video game at all. Like, he is going to save Peach, who seems to be getting in trouble with Bowser. But Mario in the video game, does he's he is as white bread hero. He's your hero. He is not, and again, people like Mario because of the, yahoo, I'm going to win. That stuff's great. But Mario as a character doesn't have much of a character. In the movie, I kind of like his character. In the original scripts, though? What, what the, what the hell is this guy? It's, 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 that's weird, but it could have worked. Like when I was reading those early scripts, I was like, this could have worked. It, it would have been strange, but look at what we got. <laughs> what we got is pretty strange, so. Yeah, there's, like I said, there's lots of weird beats just the, with the way that we're going back and forth and like splitting off into Ike and Spike and Iggy's story. And just, it's just very oddly paced and it's very episodic. I guess I can kind of see with, with Morn and Jenko coming from television and Mad Max Headroom and these kind of things, I can probably see their television roots because it feels like. You could chop this movie up into segments pretty easily and just have all of these smaller stories. It could You could almost make a Super Mario TV show out of different sections of this. Yeah, conveniently, it's the Mario yeah. Brothers. Beep, 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 starring Captain Lou Albano. <laughs> of all people. <gasps> Why not? Because he made a pretty good Mario. I, for a lot of people, he is their Mario. Even though he didn't have rubber bands sticking through the holes in his face like he did when he was wrestling. But, you know, <laughs> every time I watch this movie, I do take something away different from it. And like you mentioned, Mike, like watching it now must must be such a weird experience because I watched this movie before I knew about all the crazy shit. But I tried to not let it color my judgment of the movie. But it's almost impossible. I feel like it's almost a losing battle, especially given that it's the leads that are the ones that were having some of the the crazy shenanigans. The thing is too, is that all of these scripts came in such 
quick succession that it, it almost feels like they had writers working on scripts at the same time. One of those kind of things. I know there was one writer whose script we don't have, which is the gentleman that wrote Bill, the TV movie with Mickey Rooney and another film, I think it was called Rain Man. Barry Morrow. He writes a script and I have not been able to find that. And then that's the one I wanted to read. Like I drain I, drain man. Oh my God. What, what is that movie? Is it like Mario is the smart one and Luigi is the one on the spectrum. Either that, that was the other thing I wanted to mention. Like when I said Mario doesn't have a character, Luigi does Luigi in the video game is like the nebbish in the shadow of his brother. And that's the joke of Luigi. Tom Hanks would have made sense as Mario. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, when I think of Tom Hanks as an actor, it makes sense that he plays Robert Langdon in The Da Vinci Code. Like, that level of character is so ubiquitous. Like, Tom Hanks is the ubiquitous American actor working now, I think. And don't forget, guys, this is, like, right around the time of Joe versus the Volcano. So he was probably available. <laughs> right. Mario enjoyed his beer. Also, Dustin Hoffman wanted to play Mario. So weird about that. In the interview with Jeff Ryan, he mentions that Donkey Kong, the game, was based off of a rejected idea for a Popeye game. And we talked a few weeks ago about how Dustin Hoffman originally was up for playing Popeye as well. So it's like he's being plagued by this. (laughs) He just really wants to play characters from known properties. Eventually, he'll get hooked. Yeah. <laughs> he'll get it eventually. And with Robin Williams, of all people. So there you go. I guess that would have worked with uh, with Dustin Hoffman wanting to be in it and the guy from Ring Man writing it. They probably were like, hey, cool. All we need is Tom Cruise to be Luigi. There you go. Yeah. The shit writes itself. I-, I like the idea of Mojo Nixon's own agent pitching him to the filmmakers as a third rate Tom Waits. <laughs> <laughs> what the actual fucking nonsense is that he's tom waits who you want but like third rate <laughs> but third rate yeah we don't have this the next guy we don't have leonard cohen but we do have mojo nixon so you're all set. i love mojo nixon in this movie i love him too yeah he's not in it enough correct <laughs> yeah it's like i said it's that weird beat Man, his character, the Toad character in that genuine Parker version of the script, where he's like the double agent for Koopa, like he's helping them out. He's almost the the friendly sprite that they find in over in Oz. And it's just, oh, wait, no, I really want to get ahead. I'm going to sell you guys out to Koopa. And then there's the redemption. Toad was the most interesting character. This is Toad's movie, really. (laughs) Yeah, if you look at it from a certain point... He has his redemption arc. Once he gets that harmonica put back on, you know it's Toad yeah, now. He's coming. Man. He helps out. He tries to bring that raw meat to to the princess. You have a lot of actors in this movie like Fisher Stevens and Richard Edson who they give a lot of time to. But those guys are giving their all for this oh performance. Oh, my God. Fisher Stevens, man. When he's not in brown face? He is... Amazing. I didn't recognize who Fisher Stevens was was because I had seen him in so many films, but I never associated him in these other roles 
with the character he played in short circuit. I thought that that was an Indian actor. I don't know now if I go back and watch it because I think that was probably my first exposure to an Indian person was through that film. <laughs> Noted Indian actor, Fisher Stevens. Because <laughs> there are no actors from India. They don't make movies or anything. Correct. They don't. From what I've heard, nobody would watch a film made in India, period. My issue with all of this now is it feels like the time for video game movies has passed because video game, like the Uncharted movie that came out. Which I didn't even know was a video game. I have a hard time understanding the need, the drive for these kinds of things when a video game is a cinematic experience, especially something like that. Mario isn't, but a game that has a plot like a movie, like an Indiana Jones film, that's different. What is that show with? master chief or the halo so they finally now have a halo series i don't know how that's playing but not well not well they've been trying to make that for so long like a halo movie and now they have the show and it's just like why who wanted who asked for this nobody asked for this that, that's the problem with the mario movie that's like that's the problem i feel like if, when we talk about the mario movie now is people go who wanted this at the time, people wanted this. Oh, everybody yeah. wanted this. That, and that feels like the biggest letdown about this movie is you listen to Shigeru Miyamoto and he's like, well, it was a nice effort. It's like being very, he's being very bureaucratic. And yeah, and you can't, and you can't help but understand why it's his character. He created it. But at the same time, their interpretation of Mario is not an invalid one. It's just a strange one. Cause when you open the movie with, a, a child being delivered in an egg. Yeah, it's it's like, what is this movie? Like, And then you have Dennis Hopper 10 minutes later. You're just quest. If you're a kid, that's the problem with this movie. If I put myself as a kid, like an eight-year-old seeing this movie, I would have checked out at minute 10. Like, I would have been maybe even less than that. I would have been like, ah. I yeah, that's the thing. It's just this whole idea of the split dimension. I can get behind that, no problem. The whole thing of... We have evolved from dinosaurs. It's just so unevenly treated. And like, I wish there were more reptilian things about the dino people other than like the one shot with the long tongue. And I never got the thing with his eye when he's in the devolution machine, but we'll, we'll get there. But it was almost like you were in the bar on Mars from Total Recall yes. and goes into that bar and there are all these creatures and you're like, what what is going on here? Because yes, we're in another dimension, but everybody else looks human up to this point. Odd hairstyles, Fisher Stevens' very blue eyes, but or more, more like teal. But everybody's pretty darn human, and then you go into the cantina, right? <laughs> it's the boom boom room, yeah, and the, everybody's just really fucked up. I was like. And then you have, to further complicate things, Lance Henriksen is a fungus man. And his name is Bowser? He's credit? King Koopa. I'm talking about Lance Henriksen. Yeah, he's just the king. Okay, because on IMDb, which I know is never wrong, it says King Bowser. And I was like, no, Bowser's a bad guy. Like, I was familiar with Bowser. Yeah. I didn't know, I didn't know him by the name Koopa. Right. Like how... Ludo became Brutus for a while. Isn't Bowser his uh, American English name? 
Oh, or is it? Is it after the guy from Shauna? <laughs> I think it was. I, 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 I want to say, yeah, he's a he was called King Koopa and or Bowser. So okay, yeah, because he's the king well, of all like the Koopas, right? Daisy and Peach, like they are different characters. Daisy is Peach's younger sister. So there's, so that's the thing in Mario. That- oh, so Mario and Luigi can. We're going to do sisters, right. we're going to do brothers. Yeah, Did you know that like, there are bad Mario brothers as well? A duo? Mario and Waluigi? Right. Yeah, the one of them, he eats garlic and farts all the time. That's his like whole character. He's anti-Mario. Mario eats mushrooms and grows. Wario eats garlic and farts. And then Waluigi is just, hey, I'm going to eat. That's like his whole character. They were all added because of Mario Party, because they needed more characters for people to play as. They're like, we got a princess and we'll just, so Princess Peach is pink and Daisy's purple. Wario is yellow and Waluigi's purple and green. Whatever. Who cares? And I wasn't, wasn't there though. That's the Max Landis script that had Wallace, <laughs> Wallace or Wario, man. Oh my fucking God. That script was insufferable to read. Remind me. 500 pages? Yeah, it was like, I'm going to write the Mario story to end them all. And that's just end your script, please. Lord of the Marios. <laughs> Shot, yeah, what a... Sh- and it was... Hey, it's always the director's fault. <laughs> right. Yeah, or the studio. It's never Max's. And what's funny is, if you read that script, it hews very closely to like the weird familial relationships that this movie has. Some of the stuff is not made clear. And then and then, and then in that, it's, this is... I want to tell you about the most, uh, what the fuck is the opening line in that script? I want to tell you about my brother, the hero or something. It's like, oh, like, this is so mid 2000s. It hurts. And and I don't know how this would have been any better than than this movie. Right. And like you've already mentioned, Mike, with with this movie, when, you know, with Morton and Jankel working on TV, it's like, our, like I, I want I wish I knew when they were brought on what they had, what someone had seen of what they had worked on. Cause I went and watched some of their stuff. I don't, what, what did people see here? What were they like? Mario. It's I like a max headroom. I get it, but that is such a hard connection to make. And just that they could never figure out, is it a kid's movie or is it an adult movie? And you mentioned that there's the strippers basically in the, the boom, boom room. And then so much of it, I mean, like, I think they even cut out the kiss between Samantha Mathis and John Leguizamo. I also have to say, I was very confused and still am always because when I watched this movie the first time, I watched that Morton Jenkel cut. So we should probably talk about that a little bit too, as far as. So it's a, it looks like a work print that has been integrated back. It is, was restored by Garrett Gilchrist and was available on archive.org until very recently, but it's a work print that is integrated back in with the highest quality print that they could get as far as probably a Blu-ray or whatever. It's a wonderful job, but that's the, that's the first one I watched. I hadn't seen the original cut before that. So I started there. So when I watched it again, the second time I was just like, okay, yeah, it feels like it's missing stuff. Obviously, I was like, okay, the Iggy and Spike rap is gone, but it felt like more once they get outside of the city and just a few other things where I was like, was this in here? Was this not in there? So, sorry. I think, I, yeah, I, I was thinking that the kiss scene was 
because you can tell a little bit of a difference when they reintegrate the work print. So I thought that that had that warp on it as far as being a, a cutscene. And that's the thing I was disappointed by watching the Morton Jenkel cut and the original. I like the stuff outside of the city. It feels a little Judge Dredd. Cursed light. Right. There's desert in the video game. There's that's a huge that's a one of the the bigger biomes. Like the what there's water and then there's underground and then there's desert where they forget what the characters are, but they're like little spike guys that are stacked on top of each other. That's like the desert character. But I wanted more of that because as much as I like the Dino York set or Dino Hatton, I liked that they were going out and exploring a little bit more. Obviously, in the original, it's it's literally like one C and Spike and Iggy. But I I I appreciated. The Morton Jankel cut for just like giving us a little bit more of the world. Yeah. I really tried my best to get Mark Goldblatt back on the show because he was the editor of this one as well. I think we talked to him about Dead Heat and he was just like, oh yeah, I really don't have anything to say. I've tried now a few times to get him back on the show and he's just, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but I was like, I really want to know. When were these cuts made? How long into the process? How far did we go to get to this place? And, and before they're just like, no, no, chop all this. Because a lot of it does feel very arbitrary. A lot of it is just like little snips. And, and then it's, and then you get some bigger chunks and then you go back to snips for a while. Well, it didn't realize what a turning point that moment is. Like Iggy and Spike saying to Mario and Luigi, Listen, we're on your side. We're so dedicated to you that we're going to get ourselves arrested for singing a protest song. And the crazy thing is, in the Morton Jankel cut, it has it. And then the original, it doesn't. I didn't realize that this is a character moment because they are singing against Koopa. And there was that earlier rule why Toad got devolutionized was because he was singing a protest song. And their character arc in the original feels just like, it's going along, going along. And then it just jumps to they're against Koopa. And they're treated like they don't matter as characters when they've given them so much time to fill. Oh, my God. It just comes out of nowhere. You're like, uh, why are they good guys now? I don't know why Koopa wouldn't evolutionize everybody. Dennis Hopper wow. is going nuts in this movie. That was the thing. My wife was saying, is he preparing for Waterworld? Because he has that exact same pitch of his voice. And it, I'm like, yeah, you're right. He is. This character seemed to lead right into the Waterworld character. He just rechanneled that same energy. He's just so balls out. Where does the phobia about germs come in? Because he's constantly so worried about germs. I think there's this whole thing about like the the fungus like getting into the prison too because they defung them there's this whole thing of like the fungus is obviously helping mario and luigi throughout the movie where the the eponymous trust the fungus comes from on his eponymous album trust the fungus mc fungi i i i love that this movie is like kind of star wars-esque too it has a little like trust the fungus and right but but again like if you're if you're gonna use something as like a a starting point there's worse things than star wars true and star wars one of my favorite essays when i was in college was was talking about how star wars and luke's hero's journey is almost exactly the same as dorothy from wizard of Oz. so going back to that whole thing it pretty much is again it's like he it's the here it's the joseph campbell hero's journey 
you mentioned, Mike, the climax of this movie, it's 30 minutes, right? They are edging us with this climax here. Yeah, it is wild because of what it's, what really shocked me so much the first time I saw it was Koopa and the Goomba's presence in our dimension. That just talking about weird beat. It's really, we actually went here, but like his plan didn't seem like it was complete at that point. It just felt like, oh, I'm going to show up with one gun. I'm like waiting for a whole army. The Bowser or King Koopa's like story is, it makes no sense. What is fusing the dimensions going to do for you? There are much more of us than there are of you, like tenfold. Yeah. And what I don't understand is when they show you the world of Mario, it's the city and nothing else. So is it on have on that globe? It's like what in that opening prologue. That's why I was saying like, that's probably where they were going with the sequel was like, what is outside or is, or do they go to another world? Cause that's the, cause that's the other thing. They show the pipes in this movie. They show the warp pipes, but they're just traveling on it on their piece of carpet. I, I don't know. I like the idea of more of it having taken place in our world. Cause that part was interesting where, Koopa just shows up. But you know what's really cool? We get to see Dennis Hopper de-evolved. A big pile of goo. (laughs) I'm melting. I'm melting. Even when he's like half dinosaur, that that weird mask that he's wearing. Yeah, like there's probably something in Dennis Hopper's contract where he's like, I'm not going to be in makeup, okay? I'm not going to sit and do it. I'm just not. So fucking- I worried if there was really- wasn't really him under that. I don't think it like that's I don't think it was like I think Dennis Hopper was just like I'm not doing this. Warren and Jenkel have said that he was a a hard to work with unsurprisingly. I kept trying to get confirmation as far as them being fired from the film and them putting the DP in charge and there's a whole thing with that with the DP moving into that position that's happened occasionally but I think there's a rule in the Academy now that a producer can't jump and become a director. I think that was might have been the David O. Selznick rule. I'm not sure. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Would this one movie out of thousands of movies that exist, people are still talking about this goddamn Mario movie. Would we still be talking about it if Harold Ramis had directed it or someone more competent had directed it? Yeah, it doesn't deserve that. It's like you have a little bit of cachet in the industry if you want to shit on Mario or like you mentioned, Mike, oh, you want to talk about the Mario Brothers movie? I will do it. That's a little bit of cachet to that, right? Oh, you were involved with Mario, huh? When I finally sat down and watched this and watched that Morton Jingle cut and just took it all in, I was just like, yeah, it's not bad. If this isn't what people wanted because it isn't what they wanted, not because it's not what the directors gave them. It's I didn't want this Mario movie because I wanted mario to not be bob hoskins i wanted to be a kids movie and they should have made a movie for kids i think we would all agree this movie should have been for kids they should have made it for kids but they didn't but it's not a kids movie would this have played better as a british film you've got your british lead your british directors we talked about wolf's apocalypse a few months ago and it's that was a british tv show and that it was a movie and i think it was more successful as a tv show would this have worked better as a like a British TV movie? Feels like it is already, right? In a lot of ways. We danced around it, but imagine if they took everybody off the set of Blade Runner and painted it like weirder in a way and put dinosaurs. Like that's what the set looks like. 
And what's crazy is the set in a lot of ways feels like it takes place on one street corner. It fucking sucks when you realize it. It's like, oh, this is one square block of set and that's it. It's set bound. It's so set bound. I never get a sense of the scope of Dino City. It's supposed to be as big as New York. And yet it feels like a singular street. Like when I think about Mario, I feel like the entire movie takes place at that street corner. The entire movie takes place there. It feels like Logan's run world is bigger than this world. Lance Henriksen, though, in this movie, did we did we even mention that he's in this movie and he doesn't interact with any? He doesn't interact with anybody. So weird. He's just like, love those plumbers. He tells a little story in one of those behind the scenes things where, yeah, he was just around. They asked him as a favor, and then he ends up meeting the woman that he married eventually. So he was like, "There's good and bad," and he was the one that came up with the idea of the Rice Krispies. He's at least that's what he claims. Yeah, I don't know if it's apocryphal, but. I'm going to need you to give me a box of Rice Krispies. <laughs> I love Lance Henriksen. It's it like it be, it's so such good. a shame that he's just in one scene. I know. I would have loved to have seen him chew up the right. He can do it. And this is right around the time of Hard Target. And him like tearing off that coat that's on fire, all that shit. Right, he's yeah. Lance <laughs> Henriksen is just a great character actor. Again, like... You could have even said, hey, Lance Henriksen is King Koopa, and that would have worked. Like, again, you know, like any kind of character actor could have inhabited that King Koopa role. I'm thankful it's Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper is a villain in one of my favorite bad movies, Meet the Deedles, seemingly randomly cast in that movie as well. Him and Robert England are villains in that movie for whatever reason. It's str- it, it's like this. It's like, I don't, what, why would what got what bug got into you? Like you were like, I'm gonna do weird '90s kids movies. We've talked about almost every single one of the lead actors, but poor Fiona Shaw as Lena. I really thought that she was gonna be kind of like what Queen, the Queen from Forbidden Zone, super jealous of the king and stuff. I thought that might have been going on. I thought it might have been like the princess from Flash Gordon you think this bad but this really has good intentions but i have no idea what she's doing here she has a really gnarly Our, she has a really gnarly death scene i'll tell you that much oh that's oh my god Fuck. that shocked me the first time i saw you're it. not just dead skeleton you're fucking <laughs> you're fucking immediately dead. a skeleton oh what well, but but yeah. to be fair if they evolve from dinosaurs they would just be humans right it feels like back to the future because you're like, here's the end of the movie. The movie is five seconds away from ending. Boom, front door. Come on, Mario, we gotta go. And she's covered in dirt and shit. She's got the gun. She walked all the way to their apartment, apparently looking like that. Nobody said anything, but but it's fine. And you know what? I don't know what that movie is. I don't know where they went. There is that webcomic that you can find online, but I am disappointed that there wasn't anything else. But this movie has been dumped on so much that at this point it's like, yeah, I there. I think to be perfectly honest, most movies are dumped on unfairly. The some things deserve it, but I would say a lot of things don't deserve it. And we should also say too, as far as you mentioned the web comic, all of the information that you ever wanted to know about this movie, you can go to smbmovie.com, and that is just a treasure trove of stuff. Thanks to those guys for just having so much stuff that we could actually do this research, having all the scripts up there that amazing letter from um, Parker and Runte to 
the directors after they had a great night together and they ended up talking about the story, it sounds like. I'm glad that there are websites like SMB that exist because this, again, like community for this movie is not, it's not Star Wars. It's not, but they are, right. The Super Mario Brothers fans are much more understandable fans than our Star Wars compatriots or Alien 3 or, yeah, because you know what? I get the distinct feeling this episode's not going to piss anybody off. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping. I think most people know that this is a flawed movie. And yeah, I think I outright said it's not that bad. And that's the thing about this movie for me is I don't really have any preconceived notions of what a Mario movie is. Because for me, I don't want the Mario movie they're making now. That's just a fucking video game that you don't get to play. Chris Pratt, there's a difference between recasting a character like Mario as Bob Hoskins, and he is the living, breathing embodiment of Mario, and just going, yeah, Charles Martinet, the guy who's been doing the voice for Mario for 40 fucking years, isn't good enough to do Mario in the Mario movie. Like, you're going to tell me that Chris Pratt, American actor Chris Pratt, who I know can't do a Mario voice, is somehow going to be better than Charles Martinet, who does Mario, Luigi, Wario, and Waluigi? I don't think so. I... I'm surprised that they're not saying it has to be an Italian American playing this role. So Charles Martinet, I believe, is Italian American. Oh, that's <laughs> I was thinking like Vincent Pastore as oh, Mario. Vincent D'Onofrio. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Mario's just Edgar from Men in Black. <laughs> Sugar water mushrooms in my mouth. Mario, your skin's hanging out off the skin. <laughs> Like that? Yeah, it's like you said, like, even with casting Bob Hoskins, like he's not Italian-American, but Bob Hoskins is good enough in this role that this interpretation of Mario in this film works. I don't know what the point of remaking, making new Mario movies are or making video game movies anymore in general anyways. Feel free to make a Mario movie, but it's not a theatrical release. It's something that plays on Nickelodeon. Or, or, or Or on fucking Netflix. Or Disney Plus. Right. They should make more movies like this movie. Take some chances. Take successes and failures. There were a ton of video game movies that came out in the 90s. And they're all bad, but like failures, but successful failures in a way. Street Fighter has a great Raul Julia performance. Wow. Amazing. No. Mike, is this your singular frame of reference for video game movies? Super Mario Brothers. Is Super Mario Brothers your singular like video game movie that you've seen or have you you've obviously seen Street Fighter? Oh yeah. No. I saw Mortal Kombat in the theater. I saw Street Fighter in the theater. I I don't remember my next video game movie. It might have been all the way to Lara Croft. I think video game movies that have come into their own though, it would seem. With Detective Pikachu and Sonic. The first Sonic the Hedgehog movie is a lot of fun. I haven't seen the second one. I still need to see that first one. Jim Carrey's great, man. That's the thing. He's just, he's right up there with King Koopa as far as that scenery chewing stuff. Though, cares more mugging than chewing. But that's the perfect role for him to be this out of control, evil dude. It's like, yeah, what a great choice. All right, that is where we are going to end this discussion of Super Mario Brothers. If you can't tell already, this has been kind of an unusual episode. I'm sorry to break in here, but 
it's a good transition point. I'm going to tell you a little story about how this episode came together. So I spent months tracking down a dozen interviews for this episode, and you're going to hear those in just a few minutes here. I got a lot of no's, a lot of runaround from people, but I did get some really good interviews and hopefully have put those into a linear fashion so you can kind of hear behind the scenes stories of Super Mario Brothers. We talked a little bit about this restored rough cut and how it's referred to as the Morton and Jenkel cut named after the controversial directors of the film. I wanted to talk with both Morton and Jenkel. I never got a reply from Rocky Morton, but Annabelle Jenkel and I, we exchanged emails for months. Things looked really promising, so much so that I actually put a line in the sand and said, you know what, we're going to record this. This episode was recorded back in June of 2022. And I said, all right, I'm going to give you till September. I can't remember why, if it was like a Mario anniversary date or what it was, but all right, we're going to give you till September so we can get this interview. And it just never happened. So we don't have the voice of the director on here. In fact, we have no female voices on this episode whatsoever. Um, instead I've spoke to a lot of guys that were really super helpful. First off, I spoke with six of the nine screenwriters who are known to have worked on this film. You're going to hear from Jim Genuine and Tom Parker. You're going to hear from Parker Bennett. You're going to hear from Ian Lafrenet and Dick Clement. You're going to hear from Ed Solomon, who was another person took a little while to get, but luckily he gave me that time. Ryan Rowe, Ed Solomon's partner, wasn't really comfortable speaking to me without Ed Solomon, who was super busy at the time, but he did manage to find a little bit to speak with me. Of course, Terry Runte has passed away, but I was able to speak with Parker Bennett, and his stories are just amazing. I never got a response from Barry Morrow, who was the original writer on here, so apologies for that. Both producer Fred Caruso and production designer David Snyder, both happy to return to the show and talk about their work on the project, which was great. Again, I reached out to the original production designer, Worf Kroger, and didn't get a response. Also reached out to executive producer Roland Jaffe, didn't get a response from him either. Uh, I did, fortunately, get to speak with visual effects supervisor Chris Woods, who discussed the state of effects in 1992 when the movie was made. I also got to speak with Mojo Nixon and Richard Edson. That was quite an honor, especially to talk with Mojo after being such a fan of his music and his work over the years. Uh, again, I tried reaching out to some of the other actors, Samantha Mathis, Fiona Shaw, John Leguizamo, no luck whatsoever. But I was very fortunate to speak with Jeff Ryan, who is the author of Super Mario, How Nintendo Conquered America, which is a book I highly recommend. He goes into great detail talking about the whole history of Mario and how Mario's tied into the whole Nintendo company and the rise of video games. Really great stuff. This whole thing of Super Mario Brothers, this movie, it's such a bizarre story. Just, just from the screenwriting perspective, 
You've got a great script from Jim Genuine and Tom Parker that gets tossed out along with the original director, Greg Beeman, who incidentally I also reached out to. The first pair of screenwriters were replaced by another pair of screenwriters, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, and that was the script that was sold to actors. Those writers and that script were thrown out before they brought in another pair of screenwriters, Parker Bennett and Terry Rente, and then they were dismissed, and this Frankenstein version of their script and the Clement and Lafrenet scripts were put together, and then poor Ed Solomon and Ryan Rowe were given this thankless task of making a coherent work out of all of that mess. They do their job, and then Ed gets the call to come on back. He has to go down to Wilmington, North Carolina during the shoot and continue to provide support before he's sent home. Meanwhile, Bennett and Runte decide, let's take a road trip down to Wilmington from Chicago, where they were quickly put to work and also served as whipping boys for the actors who weren't happy with the script and they weren't happy with the directors. Again, I wish Annabelle had come on to talk about things from her perspective. I also reached out to Dean Semler, the cinematographer who replaced the original DP. That was uh, the first sacrificial lamb. Semler also took over directing for a little bit before Morton and Jenkel were brought back for post-production, at least according to Fred Caruso. And also, I reached out to composer Alvin Silvestri, who scored the film. I wanted to know why all of these great themes from Koji Kondo were sacrificed for some rather generic movie music. No offense to Mr. Silvestri, but I'm a huge fan of Mario Brothers music, so much that I've been collecting various versions of this music for years. You'll hear a few of those songs during this episode and especially after the interview portion is over. If you're familiar with this show, you know that I love to look at alternative cuts as a means of dissecting how things came together. Again, looking at a rough cut helps explain a lot of things that didn't add up in the theatrical version of the film. But this rough cut that we keep talking about, it's not some sort of miraculous thing that suddenly makes things better. It's not a better cut. It's a different cut. Uh, for the record, I said during the discussion portion of the show that it was on archive.org, but then taken off. As of today, as I record this, it's back on archive.org, and you can find it over at smbmovie.com. And speaking of, this is a huge mea culpa. I spoke last year to Ryan Haas, one of the webmasters behind smbmovie.com, which is the ultimate hub for all things Super Mario Brothers. That was back in June of 22, and when I finally went to put this episode together last week, I found that we had actually lost that interview. That is a major fail on my part. No excuses, no sympathy for me. It was awful. We recorded the discussion part of this episode on June 15th, 2022. Like I said, I planned on getting Annabelle Jankel, wanted to get it out by September. I kept moving that timeline, kept moving it again. I moved it to the end of last year. We never got her. So there was a real dread 
about not having her voice on here, especially when I got so close to doing an interview. Didn't have a time set up, but got pretty darn close to it, even sent over questions and stuff. And then things just fizzled, um, was very touch and go with any sort of communication there. The other thing is that this discussion that you just heard, it could have been better. I think this episode could have been better. This is not the ultimate Super Mario Brothers podcast that I really wanted to make it. I do think that it's a really good episode about Super Mario Brothers, especially with this next part that you're about to hear. I had so much fun talking to so many people about one film, getting all of these different perspectives. I really can't thank them enough for taking the time for being so generous with me. And again, I want to apologize to Ryan Haas of smbmovie.com and encourage people to visit that site for even more information about this film. So with all of that said, thank you for listening. Now I'm going to hit play on these interviews right after these brief messages. There is no outro to this. Once the interviews are over, there's a little bit of a music break. Enjoy the songs. And thanks so much for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Malcolm McDowell. I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash projection booth that's pretty simple i think you can do that it's a great show and mike he provides hours of great entertainment so now it's time to give back my little droogies settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old malocco and then you'll be ready for a little of the old in out in out real horror show bye-bye Hi, I'm Jason. And I'm Jules. And we do in filmographies. We've compiled a list of actors. We draw a name at random and tackle their entire acting filmography from start to finish. Or at least as much of it that still exists and hasn't been lost to time. Jason loves actor Billy Crudup in films like Jesus' Son or Almost Famous. But will he love Billy in movies like Monument Avenue or World Traveler? No, they're not good. And Jules loves actor Rada Mitchell in films like High Art and Pitch Black. But will he love Rada in movies like When Strangers Appear or Love and Other Catastrophes? You'll just have to tune in to find out. Some of the names that pop up might surprise you. Some of the films as well. So join us every Saturday on the podcast app of your choice or via YouTube as We Do in Filmographies.
Jeff Ryan, author of Super Mario, How Nintendo Conquered America. Mario was born due to another movie, in fact, Popeye. Nintendo was trying to break into the American market and they wanted to put out a Popeye video game. And the Popeye movie got delayed or something. So they had the design for a Popeye game, but they couldn't use Popeye. So they came up with new skins for the characters. Popeye became Mario, obviously, but at the time he was called Jumpman. The big antagonist went from being Bluto to being Donkey Kong. And Olive Oil then became someone named Lady. And when this finished product showed up on American shores, the Americans were like, we can't have a game called Jumpman and Lady versus Donkey Kong. These are absurd names. They lost the fight on Donkey Kong. The game remains called Donkey Kong, but they were able to change Jumpman to Mario. And in a much lesser victory, they changed Lady to Pauline. Luigi started off as a duplicate of Mario, same coloring, in fact. And as as the Mario Brothers two-player game evolved, you realize you need to be able to differentiate between these two characters. So they gave someone green and white instead of red and blue. And that was really the only difference. Luigi didn't even show up as a name yet. And the whole idea of characters being more than just the things that you moved around to do things, like tokens in the game of Sorry, that was something relatively new. That was something that Nintendo added to the game. Like Pac-Man had a personality, had a little bit of character when it moved around, but it was still basically a pizza with two pieces removed. Mario looked like a recognizable human being. And there was a story attached that game designer Shigeru Miyamoto insisted on, where you saw Donkey Kong kidnap the girl and climb up to the top of the building, and then Mario needs to go up to, to save her. It's not winning any Pulitzer Prizes for fiction, but it's still a story. It's still a reason for you to go and do the thing. The main antagonist then became King Koopa, a.k.a. Bowser, who is also the villain in the Super Mario Brothers movie. Bowser and King Koopa are the, the same person. He is Kaiser Sose. He shows up as a reanimated pile of fungus, and I believe that is supposed to be the character Toad, who was retconned as a prince or a king. Everyone had two names back then. Princess Peach was called Princess Toadstool for a while due to mistranslation. Jumpman, of course, was Mario. I think one of the reasons why so many characters had multiple names was because they weren't built to last. They were not designed to be iconic characters that were going to be cherished and handed down from generation to generation. It was just, here's a character we need a name for it. It doesn't really matter. Toad still will be fine. And then two years later, oh, this character is still around. We got to give her a better name than Toadstool. Especially since right next to her, there's a character called Toad. We're not that obsessed with fungus. It also helps that they are all essentially the same character. You don't learn anything about them other than that they're pretty, pretty princesses, the sort of thing a three-year-old would think of when they thought of a princess. But to be official, Pauline was the first from Donkey Kong. Then there was Princess Peach in Super Mario Brothers, but she was called Toadstool at the time. And then Super Mario Land Game Boy game introduced Princess Daisy, and they gave a different character because I think she needed to have darker hair. When they made the Super Mario Brothers movie, they brought in Daisy instead of Peach because Peach wasn't popular as an American name and Princess Toadstool is not going to fly with an American audience no matter how crazy the movie they're making. He was incredibly popular and because of that they thought we can just make a movie around him without realizing there's basically never been a video game 
movie before. No one has taken a two-dimensional fictional character that really is not a character at all and tried to make a movie out of them. He was in a cartoon in the early 80s. He was in a different cartoon in the late 80s. And there was a, like an Ice Capade-style show with Super Mario even. Christopher Hewitt, Mr. Belvedere himself, did play King Koopa in that one. I tracked it down, but I couldn't watch all of it. Some of it is just too painful. There's a real Donnie and Marie quality to some of this stuff. There was one in the early 80s. I want to say it was called Saturday Supercade. And they had a, a lot of 15-minute cartoons all chock-a-block next to each other. And each one was a different video game character. Frogger, Donkey Kong, Pitfall, and Hubert. It also later included Donkey Kong Jr., Kangaroo, and Space Ace. Soupy Sales was the voice of Donkey Kong for the Donkey Kong cartoon. Oh, and Peter Cullen, who is Mr. Optimus Prime, is the voice of Mario in those early cartoons. Screenwriter Jim Genuine. I was in advertising. I went out to Los Angeles to try to write movies and just took a long time and I ended up getting into advertising, became an advertising copywriter. And because of that, I ended up having some other writer friends who were also in advertising who also wanted to write for the movies. The man who became my writing partner, Tom S. Parker, he was working for Saatchi and Saatchi and I was working for another agency. Screenwriter Tom S. Parker. We had a Toyota account and we were shooting a commercial and Jim and I met the agents at Nickel restaurant, which was right across the street from Paramount. I was working at a studio right across the street from that, doing a series of commercials for Toyota. And we got this idea that really turned us on. And we ended up spending a year, as we were doing our full-time jobs, writing and rewriting and rewriting the script that we call Stay Tuned. And we were very lucky because we had one friend in the movie business. We had a couple, but one, one friend precisely was Dale Warner, who was the writer of big hit comedies. And so he had been lucky enough to have, at that time, that was 1990. This is April of 1990. That's how long ago this was. He read it and really liked it and recommended a couple of agents to us. One of the one agent at a really small agency read it, loved it. Basically, we got an agent on the Thursday. They sold it on Friday. Uh, we quit our jobs on Saturday and Monday. We had meetings all over town because we were lucky to get into that zone where people were buying a lot of spec scripts because of the 1988 writer's strike, I think there was still a paucity of material. That's how we got in. And then we had to, everybody had to prove ourselves and we got a couple assignments. Then they got a director for Stay Tuned and we worked with him on some rewrites and also got to work with the great animator Chuck Jones because they hired him. Luckily, in our screenplay, if you remember, there's a sequence in the film, right, where the man and woman who are experiencing marital difficulties and they're, they're sucked into this other dimension that we called Hellavision or Hellvision. And Peter Hyams, who directed the film, successfully got Chuck Jones to direct that little section. So we got to actually have some meetings with Chuck Jones, and he was pretty elderly then. I guess he was in his 80s. But he was very spry and very cool. And he explained to us, he said, you don't have a comic character for animation until you understand how to make them, how do they move? He said, once I know how the character moves, then I know who the character is. 
So that this, and he said he was profoundly influenced by Buster Keaton, Chaplin, and all the great silent comedians because the language of physical comedy was all created in cinema by those guys and women. Anyway, so that was an interesting experience to be able to sit with Chuck Jones and see him draw and answer some of his questions about the characters and see rough pencil tests. That's one of the good things that can happen from getting a movie made is you get to meet other creative people that are far more talented than you are and collaborate with them in some way. He was he was animating our screenplay. It was just crazy. It was like, like I tell my students, one script can change your life. It's as simple and as hard as that. One script can change your life. And it just happened to be the right script at the right time. And it also sold for a lot of money. So it allowed us not only to quit our jobs, but also it gave us a profile within the industry. Like everybody was like, wow, who are these guys? So we were lucky in that way. And then we did a lot of assignments. We did some stuff for Disney and Hollywood Pictures. And then it was May of 1992 when they started. Stay tuned, it become a go movie. We were working with the director on some rewrites. And that's when we got the call from Roland Joffe's company called Light Motive. Did we want to adapt Super Mario Brothers into a film? Honestly, at that time, we had not really, we were aware of it. We knew the characters just from being in the media, but we were not gamers. We were not stone cold gamers. They actually gave us play consoles, game consoles, and we played individually and together for, you know, I don't know, like a week or two, just, just to sort of really, really examine the nature of the world so that we really be hip to that. And we actually went in and met with Roland Joffe, who was one of the producers attached to the property. And we were mystified because in the middle of the meeting or during the meeting, he was telling us how in order to really get into the zone of Super Mario Brothers, you really had to go go to Japan and sleep on t- tatami mats. And and I, I thought he was kidding us. And then I realized he wasn't kidding. So we just went, ah, yeah, sure, okay. So I don't, I don't, still to this day, don't know whether it was, whether it was, I don't think he was. I think he was serious. That, that I guess, was his process. But he was not exactly a comedy guy. Anyway, we came up with a pitch. And we went in and we pitched to Ben Myron, who was the light motive development executive. Very nice man. Tom Parker. Our pitch really talked about how we actually use elements of the game, because that's what they want. They weren't happy with. So they called us in. We were the hot new duo at the time. And they called us in for the pitch and we got the job. And they had a director attached at that time named Greg Beeman, B-E-E-M-A-N, who had just, he had done License to Drive, which was a big hit for an, it was like a small, low budget teen comedy that he had done a really good job with. And so he was a hot director. So we pitched to he and his producing partner wife and to Ben, and they just, they really loved our pitch. And basically our original pitch, we didn't read any of the scripts that had been done before. They had a first draft. It was written by the guy who did Rain Man. Barry Morrow. It was really earnest. It wasn't fun. It wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, it's, a, it's Mario Brothers. Let's have fun. It was more of a darker take on it. And they realized that's not the way we want to go. It was like a modern day two brothers. 
that wasn't magic at all. I remember somebody telling me about it. And our pitch essentially, remember this was May of 92. What Shrek became is what we pitched much earlier than Shrek, which was a spoof of fairy tale cliches, which was to have Luigi and Mario go to this magic world. And that was ruled by King Koopa and all his troopers. We use everything from most everything from the game. We had the mushroom people and we even wrote a song. I'll embarrass myself. It was a song that Koopa's minions, his soldiers, his, his sycophants would sing to him. It was in this one scene when I think when you first, when we first introduced his, him in his court and it was something like this. It was like, a, it was, it was like a show tune and it was like, Koopa, your super, a real reptile. Of all the other rulers, you beat them by a mile. Your slimy green skin really does me in. Your cruelty's my style. Oh, super Koopa, your super, a real reptile. You take yours and chuck it. We'll keep our slime bucket. Oh, Koopa, you're super, a real reptile. Yeah, that's that was the song. And yes, it did not, unfortunately, it did not. I don't know why. You know what? I think it's because the draft you read was a, was a polished draft. And it was in the first draft. But I think that for some reason, the producers were like, nah. They didn't have the vision, Mike. They didn't have the vision. It was essentially uh, Mario and Luigi are these working class plumbers in Brooklyn, modern day. They wanted to use elements of the game in action sequences when, when the Mario brothers were in their alternate reality land, trying to find Daisy. And the audience sees, boys don't see that there's this creepy guy that's following her around. What happens is... Koopa somehow, I forget, there was some kind of mystical prophecy or something. He gets access to our world and he, he, he takes her and he, he basically steals her and takes her down to his underworld, to, to the magic kingdom where he lives. And, and Mar so Mario and Luigi end up finding a way to, to follow her and they accidentally transport themselves, uh, Dorothy and Oz, they, they find themselves in, in this magic land. And it's populated by just, just took a lots of uh, fairy tale tropes and had fun with them and really had a lot of fun with the Koopa character who was just like this massive egomaniac. And he had a assistant that was just like the ultimate ass kissing assistant that we really enjoyed writing. Had some great action sequences. I remember one of the great sequences that we really were really excited to see come to light was it was it was in the end of Act Two. Mario and Luigi have now been captured, and they're in the bowels of Koopa's castle, and they're in this place that we called the Razorfish. They're basically in a dungeon that has a frozen floor, an ice frozen floor, but. The longer they're there, the ice begins to melt, and they basically end up realizing that the ice is just a pool of water, a frozen pool of water, and there's piranha. We call them razorfish, but they're basically piranha, and so there's a ticking clock of the piranha trying to get them as the ice flow gets smaller and smaller, and they ended up escaping in some ingenious way. I can't remember how. 
And then they, they end up defeating Koopa and winning Daisy in the end. And there was, it was really funny and it was heartwarming. And we created, I know, at least two or three sequences that really consciously were, were crafted consciously to evoke some of the gameplay with the bob bombs and exploding. I can't remember the, the nomenclature of some of the fun things in the game and the power-ups and things like that. Because it was the magic world, it was really fun to be able to bring some of those concepts to life, but in a naturalistic narrative. I had never played a video game. And, and the studio sent us the video game with a video game player. And I spent many hours playing that game and learning about it and learning about various pitfalls that Mario and his brother have to go through to, to get out of their fixes. And, and so then we, we took a lot of that and then put, a, put it into the movie. Jim Genuine. We delivered a first draft. The director and the light motive people really loved it. A Paramount had already hired a whole production team and artists were rendering some of these sequences that were in our script. The Razorfish ice cave sequence and uh, several other of the big action sequences. And that was fun to see. The Nintendo executives came over from Japan while we were still working on the first draft, or maybe it was in between the first and second draft. And so we had a meeting with them and pitched to them. And they were, they seemed really excited by our pitch. Somebody was translating because somebody in the room didn't understand English. So there was a translator there. And I know I remember coming out of that meeting really stoked because the producing people were patting us on the back saying, Hey, the Nintendo people love you. It's going in exactly the right direction. You're creating a franchise here, which everyone understands. And it's, it's emotionally touching. There, there's a, there's an emotional core. It's not just a bunch of gags thrown together, which sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that's what a family movie is. You know what I mean? That it's something that has a bunch of dumb jokes in it, but it's, we know that, and you know that it has to, it has to be really involving, accessible for kids too. That's also the key is how do you make something equally as entertaining for parents as it will be for the kids? So that's, that's another reason to why we enjoyed taking a genre and twisting it that's another way for parents to have a higher level of humor going on over some people's heads. The good thing was it was a director hired. It was a go movie. Everything was moving forward and we couldn't have been happier. We won the pitch. We got the job. And then Greg says, yeah, I want to have some input on, on the, the story. So we went over to his house a couple of times, I think, would pitch him ideas and he would pitch ideas back at us and and it was only a couple of times when we I, I believe I remember that we went over there but he was really really easy good to work with they loved our draft we were also doing rewrites for stay tuned at that time and we I remember we attacked the notes and we gave them like a polished script in two weeks and they were just like very they were really super happy when we pitched it I saw people's heads go back like they were literally hit by the emotion, by the weight of how moving that could be and how emotionally engaging that is, gave it a surprisingly interesting emotional core to their journey. It also, too, is the degree of difficulty of finding the right story. Obviously, the marketing people, they don't want to fumble the ball. They want to make sure that the first movie out of the gate creating this world is something that 
and blows people away and gets everybody engaged and gets everybody behind the characters. But you still need film professionals to pull all that off. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's, there's so many different reasons why one movie gets made and another one doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with the script. It just has to do with levels of taste of who's making the film. And it was almost, it was weird. It was like two or three days after we delivered our last draft, I think, was the next thing we found out was that Greg Beeman had been fired by Paramount because what happened was they went to a screening of his next movie that he was polishing at that time, which was called Mom and Dad Save the World. That was an editing, and they, the producer saw it in editing, I believe, and didn't like it at all. Because he didn't like it, Greg was fired off the movie. And when he was fired off the movie, they, I guess they just said, we want to do a whole new tape, a new writer, it's a new director. They do that a lot. And they took one look at that, and they lost confidence in him that he could take control, control a big franchise and... and, and and handle a movie that big with special was a really good special effects. Remember, this is 1992. This is pre pre Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park, in my memory, was the watershed moment where I think not only the audience, people in the film business realized, oh my God, really we can do that? That was a huge shock. And then we that's pretty much the the end of our Super Mario story because he had hired us. And the studio fired him for some reason. Somebody threw the baby out with the bathwater, even though in all my contact with Paramount executives, they seemed like super stoked. What sometimes happens is they want to make that movie, but now they need a director. So they shopped around and they ended up hiring Annabelle Jankel and Rocky Morton, uh, who were Brits, I think. And they ended up wanting to go another way. So they hired some other writers, and that's when they created that whole thing that the the real movie ended up being, which was live action, right? Weird, futuristic, dystopian world. But you have to realize, the movie that was made, none of that is ours. Co-producer and unit production manager, Fred C. Caruso. Greg Beeman was on. There were other directors that were talked about that we met. We, our offices were... In, in West Hollywood. And there were quite a few other directors that we talked about, a few guys that came in that, that we met. And ultimately, because of Rocky and Annabelle and having been successful on Max Headroom and the commercials that they did, figured, wow, they can really bring something fabulous to the picture, which they did. I was working with a guy by the name of Ben Myron. And Ben Myron, who's a producer, produced several movies, uh, had called me in and hired me and asked me if I wanted to do the movie. I mean, I'm a freelance guy, so I guess people, some people know who I am, some people don't know who I am, and, and they called me in and said, would I want to do this movie? We were filming in Wilmington, North Carolina, at an old abandoned cement factory, so we took over the entire cement factory. David Snyder, who was our production designer, who, had, who has done other visual effects, special effects movies, I think did a brilliant job on it. And I said, sure. And plus the fact that I knew Wilmington, because remember, I built the studios that Dino De Laurentiis had in Wilmington years and years ago. When I, when I was on staff for, for Dino, he was doing a movie in North Carolina, 
and he loved North Carolina, and he bought this tract of land and wanted to build studios because he's a, was a, he built studios in Rome before and thought it was a good thing to do in Wilmington. He got a great tax break from the state and got a great interest rate from the banks and called me. And, and I had worked for Dino before on several pictures and called me in and asked if I wanted to work for him full time and go to Wilmington and help build these studios, which I said yes. And I lived in Wilmington for probably four years in Wilmington. So when Ben called me, he said, Wilmington, and we're going to make this movie, blah, blah, blah. And he hired me, and I said, okay. So that's how I got the job. Ben Myron said, yes, we know it's a game, but we're making a motion picture about the game, and so there has to be characters, there has to be a story, there has to be dialogue. The movie has to be a movie within the game, and I'm sure we went through at least a half a dozen people that came in and out that had different ideas as to what to do and how to do it. It just didn't work. And Roland Jaffe, of course, was our producer. He was in charge of the company and a very smart guy and an, an award-winning the mission and so on. And he kept telling these writers, but what's the story? And they kept saying, the game, the game. I said, no, what's the story? Tell us what you think the story should be. And nobody could answer that question. Screenwriters, they, they just couldn't do it. When I worked for Dino, worked with him quite a bit, and I learned a lot from De Laurentiis. On one project that he had, without anybody knowing about it except him and me and a few other people, he hired three separate screenwriters on Year of the Dragon. Here's the book, write the screenplay. And he paid them to write the screenplay and owned all three screenplays and had the right to take 22 scenes from screenwriter one and 22 scenes from screenwriter two and 22 scenes and put it all together, which I thought, wow, that's not a bad idea. What the hell? Get three great screenwriters, let them come up with their idea and then use it all. Pay them all, use it all. And then let, let the Writers Guild decide who's going to get credit or they all get credit. All the people who wrote or had ideas for Super Mario Brothers, they weren't all bad, but they just didn't click. Screenwriter Parker Bennett. I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison thinking I could do film school there because I didn't apply to UCLA and USC and, and Harvard, Yale, and Princeton all lacked foresight. So I wound up at the state school and got as close as I could to filmmaking. And it was during my time there that I started a college humor magazine. I wanted to edit the Harvard Lampoon and I wasn't at Harvard, so that made it difficult. So the University of Wisconsin didn't have a humor magazine. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll start one. And so we ran for about three issues, give or take. There was some like free inserts and things to the student paper that we did. But it was during that time that I met my writing partner who came up from Milwaukee. His name was Terry Runte. My vision for the magazine was like, oh, there must be lots of creative people like me all through Wisconsin who need an outlet for their humorous jottings. And there was basically me and Terry. There were a few other people, but Terry and I wrote the bulk of these magazines and developed a friendship. And we both wanted to write movies. So after college, I would drive up to Milwaukee from Chicago. And he had a late shift job. He ran the midnight shift, what he called the murder motel. It was this truck stop motel that was open all night and he would run the night desk and there was nobody there. So I would come up and we would just work on screenplays and, and story ideas. And 
work in the late hours of the morning. And, and he would get me to do all of his chores for him somehow. It was a Huckleberry Finn situation where, where suddenly I'm, I'm cleaning the bathrooms as part of the deal uh, working with him. But we, we had a limited success with our first screenplays. They were mostly really broad parodies. We thought, oh, Eddie Murphy is an angel who has to convince some poor schmuck that he was supposed to die and he accidentally lived and now he's got to go convince him it's a miserable life. So uh, that's the extent where we got. But we started coming up with other ideas and kicking things back and forth. And my mom insisted I get a job. And that eventually led to me getting a job as a copywriter at a place called Needham, Harper and Steers at the time. Now it's EDB Needham or something like that. I got this job and it was like, great. Like it was, it was everything my ADHD mind needed. Oh, I, my attention span is literally 30 seconds long. So this works out really well. It's much easier to write these commercials and magazine ads and things than a full movie script. So I called Terry and I said, you got to get in on this scam. Like you've got to come down to Chicago and get a job in advertising. And he did. I helped him put his portfolio together. And so he came down and we both worked in advertising for a few years and still coming up with movie ideas. And then Terry got fired. Uh, he was downsized. He worked at a place called Cunningham and Walsh and they got bought out by some other giant agency and he was let go as part of that deal. But his boss was a woman named Liz Nichols and she said, I'm going to California to pitch a bunch of movie ideas of mine and I'd like to have a few other ideas in my back pocket to pitch. And she gave us the opportunity to write a treatment to go pitch which wound up being called Mystery Date. And so this was the first movie Terry and I got credit for. We, we wrote Mystery Date. But Liz didn't go and sell Mystery Date. She went and sold her own stupid idea and then hired us to write it, which was this fraternity gets a police car at an auction and they start playing police. So that her, her playing police was her, her idea. And we turned it into a script called Alpha Delta PD. And it was not good. But it was really free in that when you have a project that isn't your ego and you're not attached to it, you can just bang it out. So we just, like three weeks, we banged this thing out and whatever dumb ideas she proposed, we said, yeah, sure. We could tank, add a tank to the end. Okay. Yeah. They get a tank somehow. And, and it was, it was animal house meets stripes, basically police academy. And as part of that deal, we, she said, well, we need to make this contract. Do you have an agent? We said, no. And she said, would you, I, I can hook you up with my agent. And we thought that sounds like a really bad idea because he would have no interest in making a good deal for us. <laughs> but we said yes anyway. And he was a literary agency in New York. So he was not actually a movie agent. You know, he worked in New York as he was her book agent from a book she wrote. But like all things Hollywood, there's just, <sighs> let me put it this way. People ask me, friends would ask me like, how, how do I break in? How do I make something happen? And you helpless answer that question because it's, as far as I know, you just get super lucky. And so we got super lucky. We, we wound up back pocketed by this New York literary agency agent named Todd Harris. And within six months, he moved to Los Angeles to become a motion picture literary agent at Triad Artists, which was a middling, mid-sized good agency in LA. And now we had an in. And they would later get bought by William Morris. So once 
we were we were suddenly we were like through no fault of our own we were clients of William Morris and so we we went back to the well on Mystery Day. Todd's advice was you guys should write magazine articles. I'm selling magazine articles and and we were writing magazine articles but they were for National Lampoon and you weren't selling those for movies. This was a time when there were like a lot of big feature magazine articles that got turned into movies like because there was they would profile some true crime thing or they would profile some and they would get option and it was the way he was getting sales and we couldn't come up with anything like that so we eventually just threw our hands up and we said let's let's write mystery date we had a good treatment for that and so we dug in and terry vowed that we wouldn't shave until we wrote a first draft of mystery date and this was his way of keeping himself from going out at night and and being distracted because he could not grow a beard to save his life he came in as this sort of hillbilly-ish scraggly like he looked like like the inbred ch- small child with hair. It just was not a good look for him. And so it kept him from, from flirting with girls and it allowed us to get serious. And and we wrote Mystery Date, the first draft anyway, in three weeks. And we did a reading really pretty well and we polished it up and we got it off to Todd and he said, yeah, I can, we can sell this. And then the Writer's Guild went on strike. So this was 1988 and it was at that time, the longest strike anybody had ever experienced as a writer. And we weren't in the guild, so we're like, going, maybe we should, we could sell it and we're not in the guild. But our agent said, no, no, I've got to sit this out and it'll be good because when it's all done, there'll be a big demand for material. And again, we lucked out because there was. And right after the strike ended, they went out with the script and a minor bidding skirmish followed and... Dennis Quaid's producing partner named Kathleen Summers wound up optioning the script and intending to produce it. She had a deal at Orion, and that was how we got our first break. And we immediately became assholes because the deal was for a quarter of a million dollars. Like we were gonna, if we were, if we could maintain sole credit and get the movie made, we would get payday of a quarter of a million dollars. And it's like we did a little math about three years into the rewrite. And it was not working out well. It was like between the three years of the rewrite and the splitting it and paying our agent and our lawyer taxes, it's like we were making less than a Taco Bell manager. It was it was not like we were half of a half of a quarter of a millionaire. It doesn't go very it stretch it out over three years. It wasn't it wasn't that great. But we were really determined to get this movie made because it was our baby. And so while we we got jobs rewriting other scripts, including some really I'm going to say that we didn't get good advice from our agent about things, projects we should pursue because we just, we wanted the work. And and so when the opportunity came to do a joke punch up for a gnome named Norm, we said, sure, <laughs> Stan Winston. Yeah, we want to meet Stan Winston. And we did that and we re- rewrote a movie about a cat that is inherits a lot of money and then the nephew spurned nephew of the old lady who was a rich takes the cat and throws it down a well he's so angry that the cat got all the money but it's a wishing well so the cat makes a wish and comes back as michelle pfeiffer and so this was pitched to us and we went yeah we could make that work no you no you can't (laughs) so we got some bad advice steered steered a little wrong and things mystery day came out it didn't didn't light up the box office late august in 91 or whatever it was and we've we were stalled we we'd not really come through on any of our big rewrite assignments and and we'd gotten a reputation because we kept going back to mystery day to try to make that happen 
we dropped the ball on a bunch of things that we should have paid more attention to. And the worst thing we did was we stupidly thought we could do everything from Chicago. So, you know, what we should have done right away when we sold our first movie was pick, pick up and move <laughs> to where the movies get made and the deals get made. And we were friends with Tim Kazarinski, who's from Saturday Night Live, and we were friends, and his writing partner, Denise DeClue, and we were friends. We knew Harold Ramis, and we like invited ourselves over to John Hughes' house at one point. And so we got all, it had this kind of bad information. John McNaughton was a friend. He was the director of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. And we thought, well, these guys are making it work from Chicago. We could do that. And, and we weren't Bob Zabekis, or we weren't Harold Ramis, or we weren't any of these people. So... We couldn't. It worked a little bit to our advantage in that you could come into town, into LA and go, hey, these guys are in town this week. You want to take a meeting? And we would be able to get a meeting because of that. But for the most part, we were deluded that we could just hang out and sit around in the coffee shop and not, you weren't aware of the, of the business landscape and the competitive landscape. And so our career was off track. And Whenever the Super Mario Brother project came back up, we were on the verge of sort of like getting let go by William Morris. And our former agent's assistant had become an agent himself, and he took over for us. And he said, I think I can get you a meeting on Super Mario Brothers. And we went, oh, okay. And we're thinking, okay, how on earth would you make a movie out of Super Mario Brothers? It's Mushroom Kingdom, and there's jumping around and it's pretty kid oriented. So we're thinking, okay, I guess it's a kid's movie. So we arranged to come into town and we took this meeting. And again, we got super lucky because the directors they had hired after spending like millions of dollars. So they, they spent millions of dollars on a previous couple of drafts and they had a different director attached. And uh, they basically tossed all of that because it was actually coming out too much like a kid's movie. And they wanted it to be all ages or family oriented. And they hired Rocky and Annabelle because they had this pitch and we met them for brunch and they told us the pitch and our pitch was like, okay, the million, 65 million years ago, they're British, giant meteorite wipes out the dinosaurs, only it doesn't wipe them out. It sends them into a parallel dimension where they continue to evolve until they look more or less like us, only very aggressive and, and, uh, punk. And I thought this was genius. I said, that's genius. And uh, it was helped by the fact that they had their first movie also produced by Kathleen Summers. And so we were already like bonding over war stories, working on, on you know, movies for Kathleen Summers. And they had an advertising background. They were commercial directors. So I was familiar. I could cite their commercials and I could talk about how cool they were and their music videos. And so we just found, formed a bond over this brunch and we sketched out what we would do with it early on. We both, well, at least my thought was, this is Ghostbusters. We wanted to make this, it was, it's funny, it's irreverent, it's crazy, it, but it's vaguely rooted in reality, but it's mostly comedy. And they, I don't know if they were that into that idea of making it more comedic. Uh, we were comedy writers, so that's. We assumed if they were talking to us, they wanted to make this more comedic. And we got back and we heard from Bayard Maybank, our new agent. And he said, I don't think you got it. And he said, yeah, they liked you. They really liked you. You didn't have enough specifics. You didn't have enough ideas. 
new things to bring to the thing. And they, and they, they didn't, they weren't able to nail down the specifics of what you would do with the story. And so we said, we could take care of that. We'll, we'll write a treatment. So we took the next couple of days and we banged out a 10 page treatment of exactly what we would do. And it was okay. But the thing that got us the job is I drew a movie poster. So that was because of my advertising background, I made the movie poster and it was this dark tangle of pipes going into the, into this deep black darkness where two eyes are glowing at the end. And it's title is coming to unclog the world this summer. We're unclogging the world this summer. I think it was and super Mario brothers. And that was the thing that got them excited about, okay, th these guys can do it. We were put up in LA and we had done enough to work in LA to be, be grumpy about where we got put up. So I think they put us up at the Shangri-La, as I recall in Santa Monica. And then that changed so we could be closer to their office was on Robertson Boulevard by Santa Monica and it was called light motive. And uh, it was run by Roland Joffe of the killing fields director and his partner, Jake Eberts, who is a Canadian kind of famous for driving gold star films on into the ground, not by any fault of his own, but just the circumstances were such. And he wrote a book about it called my indecision is final which I thought was a great title, but they were the producers and we came in and we were immediately at odds because the producers are pulling us aside and saying, we've wasted, you know, $20 million basically <laughs> so far. And we need you guys to be thinking it budget minded. So we want the movie to be taking place mostly in Brooklyn, right? So that, that, that we're not having to build, we're going to build a set, but we're not going to have to, most of the movie have incredible special effects and incredible sets and stuff. We want to front load as much as we can, real things we can shoot. And the director said, oh, ignore all that. And, and in fact, I think they were, they were the kind of people like, in fact, let's make the, the ending even bigger. So we, because of this push pull between the producers and the directors, we, on the one hand, we're trying to make good. We said, oh, okay, we'll try. And then on the other hand, the directors said, yeah, it's a, it's a fight atop the Brooklyn Bridge with a Kong-sized, Koopa-sized, giant Tyrannosaurus Rex-sized Koopa and our heroes. And yeah. Anyway, so there's a lot of a lot of push-pull there. And the other thing that was happening was, remember I said about ADHD and, and the world of commercials? Uh, these directors also had this problem in that every day we would go and we would work with them in this big loft space above Light Motives Entertainment. And we would sit on the couch and we would come up with ideas and, and we would put them on little post-it notes and we put them on the wall and we would just keep generating ideas. And over about a week and a half of this, we did, we realized we're just generating ideas. <laughs> like there's no, there's no story yet. <laughs> there's a lot of ideas and they got excited. Every idea would get, it's, it's like window of excitement <laughs> and then it would pass. And every day it would be like, that's not, we don't want that. That's, we want the new, new. Rocky would say. And then he got grumpy because we weren't putting up enough ideas of our own. We were just nodding our heads at things. They were very creative, very, very creative. And I was still a fan, the way that they're able to visualize and come up with creative, cool things. But it became clear after about three weeks and the producers wondering what was going on, <laughs> where's the draft, that we were going to have to go off and just take all of the ideas and make a draft. And so we did that. We locked ourselves away for a, a couple, three weeks, I guess, and wrote a first draft. And 
And we had written, again, we were thinking Ghostbusters. We had written with this with the idea of it being a younger Mario, who's a little bit of a huckster. We thought Bruno Kirby was our model. And the brothers were not so different in age. They were There was a little bit of the Luigi's the kind of good brother. And Mario, in this case, was the sort of cuts and let's make some cash and scamming people a little bit. And he would learn through the course of the adventure the to value value to value values. And and so we wrote like scenes where he's coming on to the plumbing client woman whose brain is leaking. And we'd written the Scapelli, it was Scarpelli when we wrote it, because that was my advertising boss. They were still there was still a little bit of that going on. And so we the tone of it was just completely not what they wound up with. And because we didn't know who they would cast. And so right at the end, when we were finishing our draft, we got word that they were casting Bob Hoskins <laughs> and we're like, oh, that's really not going to work. So let us, let us do a quick, quick, write. We'll, we'll rewrite it quickly to get, change that factor and make it more of a father, fatherly older brother and their dad's plumbing business and a little more of in line with how the movie turns out. Just a point of pride, we had seen John Leguizamo doing his show in Chicago, and we said, you got to go see this guy. So the, they, they went to Chicago and saw his one-man show at the time, and uh, worked out well for him, or, or very poorly, depending on your point of view. <laughs> and so we rewrote and turned it, and the director was demanding the rewrite pages as we were writing them. So that was not going well, because you can't, when you're writing something, it's not, it's in flux. You, you think it's going to be this, and then you get three quarters of the way through, and you got to, oh, no, we got to set up this in the beginning. And about three quarters of the way through our rewrite, the very nice producer, Fred Caruso, who's line producer, worked on the Godfather movies, came in and, nice as can be, said, hypothetically, how long would it take you to pack up and be out of this office? Hypothetically, what could you do it by tomorrow? We were sad, but but at the same time, we dug our own grave because we were turning in pages. They weren't all fitting together and they were getting very nervous about a movie that they had to produce at a certain time because they already had commitments for a Memorial Day thing or they were aiming for that or something. And and windows for, for Bob Hoskins. And you know, there was they're basically as we were writing the script, they're designing the sets because that's the timetable they're on. There's certain things we know. There's Dino Hatton, we know there's Brooklyn, we know there's a things that they're going to need. And so the, the production team is designing the monsters and the guy named Patrick Totopoulos, who is a genius, was a, in, on the production design team. David L. Snyder, who was the production designer on Blade Runner, was heading it up. And Patrick was just an amazing creature designer. He later went and did the, he's done a ton of stuff. He owns his own thing and he's a giant in the industry now. But he made the Goombas and he made the Yoshi, and he designed all of these creatures and things. And so that was going on simultaneous to us writing this goofy draft. And we left. Jeff Riot. The movie was being rewritten day by day. There was a lot of last minute decisions going on. The movie was supposed to end with a big bravura sequence where a Tyrannosaurus Rex from Dino Haddon escapes into the real world and runs all around Manhattan. And they realized that they spent so much money filming the Dino Haddon scenes, they not only don't have money to film the T-Rex in New York sequences, they don't have money to make the T-Rex in the first place. That's why the Tyrannosaurus Rex is just a box that you can imagine like Star Trek grips are shaking back and forth to make it look like there's something inside. And 
And that's the big finale. Is the monster going to escape from the box? No, it's not. The end. Jeff Ryan. It was a movie that everybody thought was going to be great. So I think it's better than what the critics or whether what the studios or the audience or whatever thought about it. I thought it was a better movie. But it's it was hard to find the script. It was hard to find the story because what's the story of the game? There's no narrative story arc. Save the Princess is something that is entertaining for 30 seconds at a time, but you can't make a 90-minute movie out of it, much less one that has big special effects sequences. You need to actually come up with a, a backstory for these characters. But whatever backstory you come up with, it's not the one that people have in their heads and have had in their heads for 10 years. So they were really at an impasse. And it's one that a lot of other their movies have solved when they make video games by taking games that already have a cinematic narrative added to them. There's a lot you can say about Laura Croft, and that's because the backstory that's provided for her video games is something that isn't needed for the video games, but helps make her feel more cinematic. So when they made the Angelina Jolie movies, it didn't feel like a video game movie as much. And although they've been some fairly successful movies based on games, at that time, I think that was one of the first ones that uh, was trying to be was trying to trying to become a movie. We went through several screenwriters, so it took a while to try to find a script that that everybody liked to direct, which wasn't easy to do. But ultimately, we found the script. Screenwriter Dick Clement. Silver Barrier was really off the wall because uh, well, it is actually the first movie that's been made from. A video game. Nobody had done it before, so it was virgin territory. We were not the first people to be approached. I think two or three people. Not only that, I think our directors had been on it and then moved on for whatever reasons. And we were approached, and there was this very nice married couple who would, who eventually did do the movie. And we worked with them quite closely because they explained what they wanted. We didn't know the game. We didn't know any plumbers. We know some now, oh, we've got a new project about a plumber now, funnily enough. Very alien world to us. We did not know the game. We didn't know what the appeal was. But we researched it like anything else. And we, we started to write. And we wrote a script which Rocky and Annabelle liked. And then suddenly, they were very happy with it. They were about to shoot it, or they thought they were. And then suddenly, no, no, no. We had word that Nintendo didn't like a lot of, the, of what we'd done. For whatever reasons, there were a lot of politics behind the doors that we were not privy to, didn't want to be. When they turned up to shoot it, there was a whole new script, which they directors didn't know about. And so that's that was a very strange situation. It was a I'm I'm sure, funnily enough, one of my sons worked on the movie out in North Carolina as a very in a very, very junior capacity. But he he has has told me that it was a it was quite a tricky shoot. Bob Hoskins were instrumental in 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 nailing Bob Hoskins to play Mario because it, we knew him and he liked our script. But it, previously he'd said he didn't want to do it. He'd already done Roger Rabbit. He didn't want to do something else like that. But he signed on because of our script. And then when he turned up in North Carolina, he was also fairly shocked to find it was a different script. That's really the main thing that we know about it. Screenwriter Ian Lafrenet. Rocky and Annabelle said that they'd been working on this forever, and 
I don't know whose idea it was to bring us in, maybe Ronald Joffe, maybe Rocky and Annabelle, because we all shared a legacy of British television together, all knew each other's work. But Rocky and Annabelle said, you have given us the script we've been trying to get. Thank you. And then that script disappeared. And as Dick said, some of the actors said, what the fuck happened to the script I signed on to do? And from then on, I believe it was a mess. So we never, we were never anywhere near it after that. I don't think we knew anyone else in the film. We didn't know Fisher Stevens. Didn't know Den. I did get to know Dennis Hopper very well after that, but we didn't know him at the time, Bob. So we, we we'd gone, we'd gone. And uh, of course, what was the nice man who was in charge overall? Jake Ebert's. Jake Ebert's company was obviously one of the financial equity financiers. He was a very nice man, Jake. But Ronald Joffe was certainly the guy who re- I think rewrote the script. But we can't prove it. He was the one that voiced disapproval to us. Oh, no, this won't work. And we thought, everyone else is telling us it will. So I guess Ronald Joffe was the person that was wanted us off. Maybe because it was an unpleasant memory. It's just, I've just blocked it out, my mind. Just psychologically. I don't even remember arbitration. I remember everything. I remember all the scripts. I remember scenes that things that still hurt that haven't been done or haven't been cancelled. I did, we both of us bumped into Rocky and Annabelle subsequently over the years. I think they then separated, didn't they, Dick? But I would bump into Rocky sometimes, and we were all of us good friends. So was Annabelle. All of us were very, held us in, a, in, a, in a, some affection. It was a very friendly relationship. With Absolutely. It, it, yeah. We, all, we, felt we, we spoke the same language. We, we, we felt actually reassured when we were working with them because... Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was this was totally new territory for us, and it's it oh, still it, is actually. It would be just as you, I remember the office it was in West Hollywood. I remember that we worked in your house a lot. Yeah, we worked in my house then. Gosh, Fred Caruso, the original production designer, was a guy by the name of Wolf Kroger. I've done three movies with Wolf, including Casualties of War with Brian De Palma that we shot in Thailand, including We're No Angels that we shot in Vancouver, Canada, and uh, Year of the Dragon that we shot in Wilmington, as well as uh, there was a Dino De Laurentiis film, as well as we shot in Canada and so on. Wolf is an, an absolutely one of the finest production designers you could ever imagine to have. Old-fashioned guy. He does his own drawings, his own sketches, his own designs, his own drafting. And he created the Super Mario Brothers world, this this alternate world. And he designed and drew on a piece of brown paper, a drawing paper, that was probably six feet long by three foot wide. So you can imagine this sheet of paper, six feet long and three foot wide, in color, designed this spectacular other dimension. Brought it to Rocky and Annabelle and said, here's what I think it should look like. So Rocky picked up a black magic marker and on this drawing said, cross this out. I don't need this. Move this around here. And so with his black magic marker, he just scored X this out and moved this out and erased it. He just, he just made a fucking mess of, of this drawing. So Wolf said, he rolled it up. And Rolf said, is that what you want? Rocky said, that's what I want. And well, here, you can have it and shove it up your ass. I'm out of here. And he, and he quit. I said, well, 
you did the right thing because it would have been a fucking disaster. Now we're looking for production designer and David Snyder. It was the first time I worked with David. I've done four movies with David. I love David also. Old time guys. It's, I love young people, smart, young, intelligent, creative young people. But there's nobody like the old guys or old gals. They just know too much. So looking for another production designer. And because David had Blade Runner and new visual effects and stuff, we hired David. And he did a brilliant job. We also, we were a non-union film, although I had, we were Screen Actors Guild and DGA. But we were, we were not an IA, IA film, although I had IA people on the job because North Carolina was a right-to-work state. So we were able to hire and mix and match as we wanted. But halfway through the production, the IA came down and wanted to vote to see if all the people wanted to join the union and should it be unionized and so on. So we shut down for like two days while all of this happened. And when it was all said and done, nothing happened. None of the crew wanted to join. A few people wanted to join, but the rest of it didn't. And then at the end of two days, we, we continued to shoot. So that was that. And we, and we shot the entire movie in Wilmington, North Carolina, at the Cement Factory and on live locations. Production designer and second unit director, David L. Snyder. And there was a guy who I'm a big fan of. His name is, I think it's Wolf Kroger. I think he resides in Paris, France, and he works in Montreal, French-speaking province of Canada. And so he was on the picture, and he had uh, had a falling out with the director team, Rocky and Annabelle, and he, he actually left the picture. He was not removed. He resigned. I went in and I had never met Fred before. I'd never met Roland Jaffe or Jake Everts. And of course, those guys were all heavy players. And they were going to make this movie based on a video game. And when I came in, I interviewed with Rocky and Annabelle. And they said, uh, Fred called me and said they passed on me because they were afraid that the movie was going to look too much like Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Blade Runner. So they declined. And so after a week or so, Fred called me back. I actually ran into them socially, and we had a chat, and I said, good luck, it was nice to meet you. And then the next day, I got a call from Fred and said, you're hired, they want you to do the picture. And I said, why do they want me to do the picture? And they said, because they really liked your work on Pee-wee's Big Adventure and on Blade Runner. So I said, okay, so that was the beginning of knowing a little bit about Rocky and Annabelle, who were really talented people. We've all said some mean things about them because it was so hard to make that movie and it didn't need to be. And I retract all of it. At the end of the day, whatever they did was fine. And if the film failed on any level, in, in my opinion, is as soon as Jeff Katzenberg, Jeffrey, came down and saw the sets and the costumes and bought the picture, when it became a Disney film, all of a sudden everything changed and Dick and Ian's script was thrown out and started over again. So the final movie is... It's a combination of what Dick and Ian wrote, what Rocky and Annabelle wanted, and what Disney wanted, and th therein lies the trouble, so to speak. I thought it was a great-looking movie. It wasn't bad for me, but 
in the beginning, it was a terrible failure. And now, because it's such a goof, people like my kids' age, they all love the movie. They're crazy about it. It's like a goof on a well-known video game. And now it's more popular than when it came out. I think it's writing in about 2000 on IMDb, which is amazing for a failure. Of course, Blade Runner was a failure too, so nobody knows nothing. When I got there, there was a whole art department left over from Wolf Kroger. So Patrick Tatopoulos was there, and Robbie Kansang, and let's see who else. Oh, yeah, of course, Simon Merton. There's a whole bunch of great people there when I started. So when I took over that picture, and by the way, that's the same thing that happened at Demolition Man. Jack Degobia was there before me, and Marco Brambia decided that they were on cross-purposes and design. So that was actually the second picture in a row that I took over. So the design was set in a way that they were conceptual drawings and paintings, and the artwork was beautiful. And of course, there were no computers, so everything was handmade. Everything was pencil and paint and marker. And it was, I don't know where the drawings are, but I wish I did because they were all extraordinary. And, and Mentor Huebner, production illustrations that he did in charcoal, and Patrick Atopoulos, who, who concentrated on the creatures, on Yoshi and all the dinosaur stuff. So Patrick would always come up to me and say, I want to do some architecture. I don't want to do creatures anymore. So then he's crossed over. And, and then Walter Martitius, who was my art director, it was the first time I worked with him. He was a really good illustrator and, and remains so today. I guess it's simple to say that we completely ignored the video game. I don't think I ever saw it at that time. I saw blips of it because it was so popular. I'm sure the designers of the game were stunned when they saw the movie, not in a good way. But, but I met them at the premiere. They came to the premiere, and uh, we all had a good time. And of course, the design came out of the location that we found was a cement plant outside of Wilmington, North Carolina, and that became the structural basis for the set. So what we decided that, except for Brooklyn, New York, and other locations that were in the show, the entire film would be shot in the cement plant, and then we started to convert it into was known as Koopa Square, and uh, what we did was use the existing concrete structure, which saved a lot of money, and like curtain wall and architecture, we basically built the sets and hung them on the structure because one of the biggest costs in constructing sets is the structure to, to hold them up. On Blade Runner, when we built the sets on the New York Street backlot, they were so multi-layered we had to replace the 1924 telephone poles with I-beams. We had an engineering company come in and sink the wide flange beams into concrete in order to hold up all the layers that we came up with for the sets because it was Ridley's concept that if you look at downtown LA, for example, in 1920, 1940, 1960, 19, layer upon layer, and we decided that the mistake in most science fiction films made was it was from the ground up, like Logan's Run, as an example. We decided we weren't going to do that. So I think that's what makes the film so unique, and I think it what makes it as a standalone. Before that time, I don't think anyone had done that. 
So what we did was he picked up that idea on Super Mario Brothers, and we already had the structure in place, except it was concrete and steel. We didn't need to add anything. So the design of the set is based on the cement plant, in fact. And the Rocky and Annabelle were very involved in the art department to the point where you would have to get both of them to agree, which they always didn't. And there were some times when we were in progress of constructing sets and someone, one of the, the couple had gone out of town and they'd come back and they'd say, well, I didn't approve that. It was, it was tough. So at one point in Legion with Fred and Jake Everts and Roland Jaffe, and we just said, we're going to try and operate independently in the design of the film. So, Thank you very much, Rocky and Annabelle. You told us what you want. When it comes down to the detail of all these things, we have to have a free hand without delay. Otherwise, we're never going to meet our dates. Because once Disney came out, they had a release date. And before the advent of streaming, when they had a release date to the exhibitors, it was a contract and you had to deliver whether the film was ready or not. We went on and there was a lot of hard work. There was a lot of changes. Now, the big thing was that with, with Fred Caruso there, because I'd never worked with him before, we got along great and Fred would send me memos that would say, don't hire anybody else, period. And if you do, you'll have to pay for it. I have great memos for him. And I respected it. And the evil machine was great because we were in the cement plant there was a lot of gear that was left over from the manufacturer of cement. So I would walk around and take photographs, and you can see that the evolution machine were two like giant concrete hoppers that were conical in shape. And we decided to take whatever we could find there because it was massive in scale and it was all iron and steel. Koopa's world's supposed to be hard. Everything about it is hard and pointed and scary. And so that's what we turned into the Evo chamber. And I have before and after photographs. And so I like that. The, the other thing that worked out well for us was because the cement plant, the main room where the set is, was over 100 feet high. So when I designed Koopa's his, his lair, so to speak, it was 100 feet in the air. So you look out the window and you're looking down. This is not a mad shot. There were mad shots, but that wasn't one of them. It was all live, and you could look up and look down. But the problem was that it was the beginning of digital digital visual effects, and, and Chris Woods, who was the uh, visual effects supervisor, came up with a, a software that he got from a company called Behavior in Montreal for all the particle disintegration stuff. It had never been used before. It was the first time it was ever used. So we had that as a tool, but... It was new, and there was always problems with time and money. And so in some of the scenes that we shot, you really shouldn't see the ceiling. The ceiling should be the sky. So I was never happy with that, and I tried to limit all the angles possible. The big problem with the film, the way I see it, is the end of the movie was supposed to be a fight between Koopa and Mario on the Brooklyn Bridge. And so I had talked to Ken Burns who kindly sent me a video cassette of his documentary. And we went ahead and started to decide we were going to build a big piece, full scale of the Brooklyn Bridge. And that's where the end battle was going to be, where Cuba is defeated. 
Well, what happened was we ran out of time and ran out of money. And so when you see the end of the movie and he's in a concrete bucket going back and forth and he turns into a, a dinosaur, all of that was like, you could almost say it was improvised. Yeah, it was not not great. And if the movie had ended before that and then skipped that scene and somehow assumed, okay, Coop is dead, have a funeral, that's what really ended the movie. And then by the time we went back to L.A. and we ran the picture for Jeff Katzenberg and Michael Eisner, at the end of the screening, they thanked me for all my work, and I was dismissed, and Fred Caruso and Rocky and Annabelle stayed around to have a, a meeting, and then we started doing pickup shots and added scenes, and some of them I think were great, and others, the whole thing with the uh, reincarnation of Daisy's father and the snot and the slime hay. I was never, never in favor of any of that at all. I suppose someone could take the film, reduce its length, and cut out all the things. If I was going to do it, I know the things that I would lift from the picture. Because one of the problems with the film that it ran so long and ran in so many directions I think if you lifted some of the things, it would make a better movie. Some of the things were ponderous. I don't know, maybe the fans like it, but the Goombas dancing and the elevator and all that stuff, to me, was preposterous. I think that's what basically ruined the movie was the end of the movie because we had it all planned out. It was going to be great. And, and what it did was it married it to the self of the Brooklyn Bridge, which is seen throughout the movie. And some of Chris's match shots, as a matter of fact, Went to New York and set up a platform and shot the Brooklyn Bridge in day and at night and then composited it with the the, the river in, in Wellington, the Cape Fear River, I think. And so when you see the movie, the river is in North Carolina and Brooklyn Bridge is in New York, where it belongs. So Chris Wood managed to do all that. And the thing that's great about it is it's not like a matte painting because the water is actually moving because it's real. We just photographed as a holdout map. And Dean Semler's stuff was great. Patrick Totopoulos really got involved with Yoshi and the animation of it and the Goombas and all that stuff. So they ran that while I was concentrating on, on the sets. And then near the end, they sent me to New York, Roland sent me to New York to shoot second unit footage because it really needed footage shot in Brooklyn. The arrival as the car goes through the town, because in dailies, Bob Hoskins, who I met on the film, he said to me, you mean to tell me that stuff we just shot with the truck, the plumbing truck, that's supposed to be Brooklyn? And we all said, no, that's right. It's no. I went to Brooklyn and I had a, a unit. We shot a bunch of stuff, which is all in the movie, thankfully. And going back to the sets themselves, the other thing about the hundred foot high meant that we could build on one level, and there was a level below us, too. So we had so much dimension in the film. If it were shot in 3D, it would be even more massive in its dynamics. But when Mario and Luigi go to the bar, when they finally put clothes on and get dressed up for the night with Iggy, when you see the shot, if they're walking along underneath their feet, we built an iron grate, and you can see traffic going below them. It's almost like a trick shot, but it was all done live. So we did so much stuff live in the camera. Spike and Iggy. Yeah, that's it. 
And, and by the way, I, I had worked with Fisher Stevens long ago on a film called My Science Project and met him. And I'm responsible for him coming to do the movie. So I don't know how he feels about that nowadays, but he's on succession. He's on a big hit. So what do we care? So he's still a great, but I, I've been in touch with just about everybody from that film in all this time, especially people in the art department like Patrick Totopoulos, who is a director, production designer in his own world and designs Batman cars and props and things like that. So Simon Merck did a lot of illustrations of the props that were then manufactured. And Paul Lombardi, who is the uh, mechanical effects supervisor, had to spend a lot of time working with him too because we just had ideas, and there's ideas that are outside of the construction department, need to be manufactured by the special effects department because there's a safe, there's safety reasons involved, like the ice sled that had to be built at the last minute. A lot of those ideas that you see in the film were developed at the last minute, and it was very difficult and the amount of equipment that we used and the manpower and everybody involved, the number of extras. The biggest thing that happened to me on the show, aside from the fact that my wife was working on the show with me, to a small part, she was the head check girl because she was an actor and I was worried about my business. She happened to meet Bob first. And then the first day that Bob worked with John Leguizamo was a scene where he and and Johnny Legs go through the wall, and they go into the parallel universe. And because we, we had a 500-gallon dump tank dumping water on them, I talked to him, and I had a little safety meeting, and I said to Bob, I want you to step on these particular spots where I put this 3M material that's abrasive, so when the water comes down, you won't be killed or injured or armed. So... From that day on, once he found out that I was married to one of the actors, we developed a friendship that lasted for the rest of his life. And after the picture, he, he invited us to come to England to do a film that he was going to star in and direct with Saul Rubinek and Dan Aykroyd and a bunch of other people. And we worked together, like I said, till till he passed away. So the one thing that I took away from Super Mario Brothers was that's how I met Bob Hoskins. It was a life, literally a, a life-changing thing that changed our life in the direction I was going in, not only with my career, but on the personal side. He, he was everything you ever imagined that he was. He was that guy. He was humble and simple. He had a temper and knew when to use it and when not. But there were days on the film that were very difficult for Dennis Hopper and for Bob Hoskins and Fiona Shaw. They had a really tough day. They had a worse tough time than I did because once the sets are built, they're built and you have to shoot them. Of course, unless you're working with Ridley Scott, that's another story. And as the cast, they had to be there on the set. And I can remember in dailies, seeing dailies, Bob talking to John Leguizamo, I said, do you know what we're doing? And he said, no, I don't know what we're doing. Do you know what we're doing? Not having any idea because it was improvisational. And Rocky and Annabelle, their theory was you shouldn't make a decision on anything until the last minute. And they had a belief 
that that's how they thought they're thinking that's how you get the best product well i guess in a way they're right because rocky has a company that's one of the biggest commercial film companies in the world if not the united states and he's made thousands of commercials and a big success and i don't think he ever made another movie and annabelle has i know that she's made an independent film but i think well, I don't really blame them so much as I blame the messing around with the script and then bringing in the writers from Bill and Ted and trying to fashion the script to please Disney and everybody was working on the script. And I mean, it, that's that's basically what's wrong with the movie. It's a conflicted script. And, and anything that's ever been any good, like The Godfather, for example, it started out with a great script. How can you go wrong? If you have the script and you stick to it, which I think Francis did for the most part. Of course, it's based on a novel, so that's another story. During the construction period, there were times when we would get to a certain point as far as the budget was concerned. And I can't remember what the budget was because it kept changing all the time. And I would have to go to Roland and Fred Caruso and said, I need more money for this and more money for that. And sometimes they would give me the money, and other times it's not giving you any more money. So go fish. So what we tried to do was we tried to recycle some of the things, which was done on Blade Runner, by the way. We recycled a lot of sets near the end because we ran out of money. Look, there's a saying, motion pictures are never finished or really terminated, and that's true. Movies just terminate. Say, okay, we're pulling the plug. Fred has a reputation for being really good at that job, you know, because I've worked on a couple of these. And he's great, but he does love movies. There's people in that position who are making budgets. They're not making movies. And the problem is it affects the outcome. And so I try to stay away from people in my career who only think about the money. There's a saying, they know the, the cost of everything and the value of nothing. And and that's a fact. After we got into principal photography, I don't even remember how many days we shot, but outside of that, because we had a really strong design department. Oh, yeah. And Tom Valentine. I can't forget Tom Valentine. I found him, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, when he was working for Douglas Trumbull and Richard Urisich, who were the visual effects group, Bill and Ted. A lot of matte shots, a lot of matte painting, composite shots. And Tom was the visual effects art director. So he worked with them and he was the go-between between me and Dr. Trouble. So we both have. And then for some reason, that relationship came to a pause, Bill and Ted, and he was going to leave. And I said, you're not going anywhere. So I brought him into the art department. And now he's worked on so many Marvel movies as an art director and supervising art director. And actually, he just recently retired on January the 1st. But he's a guy that, you know, worked for John Dykstra, Doug Trumbull, and all the visual effects giants. And that was his job to just manage the marriage of what was there and then what you would add to it. And he was a genius at that. To, to the point of, we all came into the art department one morning, and he had come in early, and he had moved everyone's desks out of the way and on the floor, he taped out in different colors of tape, starting with the camera and what the trajectory would be to the final shot. So he laid out the shot on the floor. 
disregarding what anyone else had to do that day. And he, he's a genius. And then I took him with me. Uh, was he on Demolition Man? I can't remember. But he was with me on Soldier, and he was a supervising art director on that. And, of course, that was another movie that was very expensive and very beautiful and fun to do. And that also failed, sadly. There was Simon Merton doing the cars and the props and Patrick working on all that. Joseph Poro's costumes were amazing. I don't think he had much to do with Rocky and Annabelle. He just did his thing because he had the personality that he was able to do that, unlike me because I was more agreeable in a set. And and then Tom, Val- Tom Valentine doing all the vis- visual effects shots and Robbie Consing doing the storyboards. Everyone who worked on that people, picture, even people from New York, Tim, Tim Guy, who was an art director, all of those people have gone on to great careers. Sarah Knowles, who was an assistant art director, is an Emmy winner. Everyone's done great or quit. But there wasn't anyone in the art department that I could think of that was not doing a great job. Oh, and then Beth Rabino. Can't not cannot mention her was the set decorator, and this was one of her first movies, and she's gone to have a couple Academy Award nominations and Emmy nominations, and she became production designer, which is a normal path, like Linda DeSena from Blade Runner, the decorator, eventually became a production designer, because at some point they why should I work for you? I can do that. I'll get myself a construction coordinator, and he'll help me. That's the way it worked out, that Beth is responsible for as much as we did, or even more because of set decoration, right down to the lizards on a stick and all of that stuff. She was just fearless, and she was new. She didn't have that much experience, and yet there she was, and she made the film her own. So we had that. Thinking of the property department, they were basically just people who took the props out in the morning and handed them out, and at night locked everything up. So they were never involved in a creative way. They just took Simon Merton's sketches or or whoever, because there were so many people drawing. Tim Eckel, that's his name. He was one of the art directors. He's he's a production designer now in New York. Fred Caruso. I thought the wardrobe and visual effects and special effects and all of that went really well. As a matter of fact, That was the early days of visual effects, and there was a computer that came from Australia called the Flame, and that was one of the very first times that that computer was used, and it was given to us by the Australian company as a test to see how it would work. And I had tried to get several visual effects companies, including George Lucas's company, to do the visual effects, and everybody wanted 10 million, 12 million, 15 million. I said, wait a second, that's more than what the movie cost. So what we did is we set up our own visual effects department. We rented a couple of warehouses in West Hollywood, and we brought in half a dozen people that knew visual effects and how to do computer CGI. And we brought in this computer called The Flame. And And on our own, in our own visual effects department, for like a a little bit more than a million dollars, created all the visual effects for the movie. Visual effects supervisor and second unit director, Christopher Francis Woods. It was crazy difficult days to do anything back in 1980. 
And then even by the time Mario Brothers was getting made, I was hired in 91. It was released two years later in 93. Things were just starting to really get put together then, which allowed to do some more groundbreaking work. For, for instance, you, the first one on Mario Brothers, I, I met the guy who had written the Flame software, Flame and Inferno and Flint and this whole is an Australian gentleman named Gary Tregaskis. And he had been showing the software around at some shows and so forth, but hadn't had a deal yet. So I made a deal with him to use the software for Mario Brothers. And he didn't even have his deal, which he, he made a few months after I made my deal with him, with Autodesk, which was then how they turned it into a product and released it. And it's still sold today. It wasn't Autodesk then. It was Discrete Logic. And then Discrete Logic, a couple of years later, a large part, I think, really because of the success of Mario Brothers, technically speaking, highlighting technically speaking, they went public on NASDAQ and made a bag of money. And then, and then Autodesk bought them and they made another bag of money. And for Gary, that was it. Not for his life, but he retired early on, on his success, having created that amazing tool set, which, like I say, is still in use today, except for Photoshop and some other. There aren't that many programs that are still around for 30 years. And we did virtually all the effects, almost all the effects. The other main guy there, uh, Richard Jovinsky, who was running the company from the business side and partnered up with Gary. He had some software called Eddie, and he thought that was going to be the big deal, which was funny. And so he gave me a quote, and I was like, I don't even care about this software. I mean, Flame is it, man. That's the stuff. Although, it, it, of course, it had great power because it ran on those fire-breathing SCI machines of the day. Now there's another company that's fallen by the wayside, but, but SCI was big back then because they had capabilities that other systems didn't have. Fred Caruso was the line producer on Super Mario Brothers, and... I had worked with Fred on Bonfire of the Vanities while I was at our Greenberg Associates. Our Greenberg was kind of the missing link, by the way, when I jumped from, from digital effects to Mario Brothers. I actually I left digital effects after about a year and a half because I loved working on that groundbreaking stuff, but they were underfunded and and just in, in a really tough spot. And so I, I went to our Greenberg Associates in eighty one late 81 they were well funded because bob greenberg and his brother richard who was doing the creative bob was a business guy they were the arguably the top graphics design slash live action company doing both feature film graphics work and lots of tv commercials in the u.s there was some big competition in in l.a some in New York, but they were really at the top of the pile and doing the most expensive stuff. So they had more money to play with. Obviously, we all knew that it's this, this incredibly successful video game, which is going to be made into a film. And so it was a first at that level. And, and for me, who at that point, all those years ago, was one of the pioneering digital guys. It, it just seemed like such an obvious opportunity. People at that moment told me, I said, well, oh, we're going to do it all digitally. And they thought I was out of my mind, which may be true. I don't know. Because they said, well, you can't. The stuff doesn't exist. And I hadn't met Gary Tregaskis. I hadn't seen Flame Software. I did know the guys. I had been in touch with the guys at Kodak. 
So I knew what they were up to with their Cineon system, with the scanner and the film recorder. And those were key pieces of the puzzle, obviously, was, was can you get a pin-registered image into the digital space in a, in a reliable way, in a high-quality way? And Kodak, being Kodak at that time, had lots of great technology, both on the film side and the, and the digital side. And so I, I knew that they had a prototype, and I was, was prepared to flog them hard if, to even use their prototype, if that's what we had to do. But it turned out they then opened up a Cinesite in, in Hollywood, and actually Mario Brothers was, I think, I don't know if it was the first client. It was certainly the first feature film to go through their, their equipment, and, and one of the very, very first clients that they had when they first opened up. At the time, I felt like there were a lot of effects, although also I was, I was worried about the budget, of course, and, and it wasn't a big studio movie. It was actually, it was big for an indie, but it was independently financed, so it didn't have a studio behind it. We ended up doing something like 200 shots, which these days, big movies have 2,000 shots. But yeah, back in the day, it was daunting task. You know, like I say, people thought I was crazy, and they thought I would fail. And others were failing at some of this Stuff. Even ILM, at that moment, they were doing some amazing stuff with their 3D, but their 2D digital pipeline was really started. They didn't have one. And then they, they actually, of course, like everybody, quickly found out about the flame system, wanted to try it, and had a where they, they called it the Sabre system or something like that. And it was all shrouded in secrecy because really what they were doing was par- partnering with with discrete logic and and the flame and inferno systems and didn't want people to know because it was very much a no no we're inventing it here i think they didn't want to admit that they had not been able to invent it there i'm not casting aspersions on ilm They're, they were a fabulous company they've always been a fabulous company in so many levels but their pipeline their compositing pipeline was still very much optically when we were doing Mario Brothers. And actually, there's a guy who came from our Greenberg, Stuart Robertson, who's a top optical guy. And he told me how he was working on an old Mac, an early Mac, doing frame-by-frame compositing as a test to, to, let's see what's going on with new pipelines in the digital world. When I had, at the same time that I had 10 Flame Inferno, they were alpha systems, basically. They were custom systems. And and when I so when I made the deal to do to use the software, I made the deal with Gary again the, the guy who wrote the code Australian Gary Trigaskis that he would be available directly to us to come in and actually write code on site based on big issues that we I knew we would have I didn't know what they would be but I I knew that there would be I there always are. At that point, though, I'd started a CG department 10 years earlier for Greenberg and been, been pushing digital hard to break boundaries for 10 years. So I think that was the thing that really made me feel as ready as I was going to be. All of it was a pretty big challenge. But again, being 10 years past where we were 10 years earlier, I knew we'd come so far. And I guess when, when, when things fell into place with, between Cinesite with the scanner and the film recorder, because we weren't in a fully digital world at all. The editorial was all was all traditional editorial. Everything was shot 35. Editorial was going to be 35 and on a flatbed and movieolas, as was the order of the day. Everything w- w- had to be reinvented, which is, I loved. To me, that's the most exciting, most fun part of the, the business. 
is to figure out how to do something that, that somebody said, we don't know how to do that. What are we going to do? So we came up with a, a, a kinescope system where we would shoot off an SGI monitor with a Mitchell camera. <laughs> you got the nice pin-registered Mitchell, shoot a frame, advance a frame, shoot a frame, advance a frame. So click, 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 still frame like that. Send it over to the lab so we'd get 35-millimeter film that could then get cut into the movie. It was painstaking. But it was it was just great to have all these challenges and, and have to figure it out. One of the things about having Fred Caruso, he's one of the great line producers, really, of our era. This is a guy who was production managing and then line producing, starting with, like, Taxi Driver and The Godfather and Network and Blue Velvet and a bunch of, of De Palma movies, which is why I met him on Bond for the Vanities. Greenberg was doing the opening sequence and end credits for that. He'd worked with some of the best directors and producers, but some of the best directors, you know, minds in the business. And he had a sense for quality and getting the top people to do things. And for instance, we had for physical effects, uh, Joe Lombardi and his son, who was his son was, was pretty old then too. Joe was really getting on. But Joe was a guy who, who had done physical effects on the Ten Commandments and on the Lucille Ball show. And he just he was that guy. And then Special Effects Unlimited, which is still today, has changed hands, but where people go for all of their smokers and guns and all kinds of gear in Hollywood, or at least they did. I, I haven't looked at the company in years, but they were that place. Fred had these these top people in each department. And and so makeup and create, there was a guy named Vincent Guastini and some other people who people should look up because I can't think of their names, but everybody was top notch. So Yoshi was, was puppeted and we just did rig removal on it. Yeah, because the technology to do Yoshi CG in those days really didn't exist. Look at what was groundbreaking was the Metal Man, which came out right around the time that Mario Brothers came out for Terminator 2. And that was really a mix of the 3D capabilities, as phenomenal as they were at that moment, didn't compare to where 3D is now, or it even was 10 or 15, 20 years. It, it, 3D really came of age, I would say, from the early 90s, from that kind of that Metal Man CG and so forth, up through the next 10 years. They really made so much. And of course, they can do things that, that defy an ability to be seen as, as CGI. You know, like the way to get the best work was not to try and use one technique all the time, but to use different techniques and to blend techniques and mix techniques. So if you thought you knew what the trick was, you would be fooled because something would belie that. You thought, oh, then this will be the limitation or that. It could be as simple as, like I say, just rig removal on animatronics. So you think, oh, it's got to be animatronic. But then you're thinking, but, but then how did they? I don't see any way that they could have controlled it. But digital technology allowing you to do rig removal, of course, and now it's, it's humdrum and common for years, but that was a breaking ground kind of capability. And to me, it, it, as much as it's, it's simple in a way, it's also very exciting because you know, we really were changing the way that films were made. And that's, that's why I wanted to, to say to you, and it's one of the themes that I haven't spoken about a lot, but there was a one of those, it was almost like a Rocky horror show, except it was for Super Mario Brothers a few years back, probably, God, I don't know, 10 or 15 years back now, over at one of the old theaters here. And everybody was having a bitch fest, so to speak. It's not really the, the most descriptive way to say it, but 
a piss fest on oh, what a crappy movie Mario Brothers was, and it was laughably bad. In many ways, it was. But I know the stories of why it was so fraught with trouble. I know many of those stories intimately because I was there for two years. But having said all of that, I'm very, very proud of the fact that, that the crew that I brought together and, a lot, again, a lot of the people, and I can't sing their praises a lot, there were top-notch people on that film in just about every department, and we really pushed forward filmmaking and, and high level, like I say, at the animatronics and creature level, makeup level, special effects makeup level. And, and, of course, visual effects all working together in concert to do something new. Uh, we thought we'd have a big hit movie. Unfortunately, we didn't. We had a, a movie that did not succeed. It did open Memorial Day weekend, and those were the days when Memorial Day weekend was as big a weekend as there would be all year, typically. And it opened and, and did number one that weekend, and then word of mouth got out and it dropped like a rock. But because of that, well, a person's problem is that sometimes it's another one's luck. And so I got into the DGA. They rushed me in. And I directed for six weeks. And I think it's 30 years later. I'm still in the DGA, although I've done very little directing. And so they can't really punish me much at all. I don't think 30 years later, I think a statute of limitations has run out. But I was doing first unit directing, because. but they called me a second unit director. I directed for six weeks. And, and the reason I say that is because, you know, if, if there's talent in a shot, on-screen talent with lines, then that's supposed to be, by definition, first unit. And DGA, I, I assume they're still big on that, but they were very, that's one of the issues of DGA is who's directing and what they're doing and their, their rights are protected and so forth. And I'm totally all good with all of that, by the way. But anyway, at this moment, that was my first job as a freelance the filmmaker was Mario Brothers. I'd been an in-house guy at Greenberg and digital effects before that for 12 years. So first job as a freelancer, I was having a lot of fun and we had to get this movie done and it was in, it was in tough shape. They were way over budget. And so the ability for me to work with people like Bob Hoskins and Dennis Hopper and Fiona Shaw and John Leguizamo, Samantha Mathis and on and on and on. It was, it was phenomenal. Yeah. It was just the most fun I'd ever had to do that. And then have the digital side and all of that fun as well. It was what a time. I best time of my life. We were all set up out there in, in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is where the film was shot. It was shot at a, at a cement factory, the ideal cement factory, just outside of Wilmington. And it was quite a location. They had a quarry, as, as cement factories sometimes do. It was an amazing place. And so we, we, they were able to do so much of the shooting right there between the quarry and then the factory had been decommissioned. But it was this huge gigantic sprawling facility with with immense interiors and so forth so it, it really did well for the dino hatton side of yeah and oh like for instance bob hoskins he had a broken hand at one point from something that was an unfortunate situation that again i'm not going to talk out of school about why his hand was broken but he was pissed off about it i'll just say that and so we had to do a portal scene and like, okay, what do you need, kid? To me, and I said, Bob, you got your hand in a cast, and I don't, I don't think we're really concerned about that. Uh, and he goes, No, 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 don't worry. I, I, I was in the Carney show. I'm, I, I can do what. You just tell me what you need, and I'll do it. And I said, What I really would love to have would be a flip. You're, you're coming through. I said, Okay, Bob. So here's, 
here's your acting challenge is you are being transported in an interdimensional time portal from a present day to Dino Hat in a parallel universe, and then we'll have to send you back. Everybody knows that realistically, when you come through, you might be flipped around like you're in a blender or something, maybe. And I'd love to have you do a flip, but I don't want, I want to make it as safe as possible. And I don't want you to get hurt anymore. And you're in a cast already. And he goes, no problem. I got it. Watch this. And he did. He did a crazy flip. And I thought, oh my God. And it was great. And he was great. And everybody that I worked with was like that. It was just a can-do attitude. Even if people were getting a little frayed around the edges at some level, We all wanted to get the movie done, and everybody really pulled together and did what they had to do. David Snyder. We also had a change of cameramen. Once we started shooting, the director of photography was replaced, which didn't have to happen, because in the movie business, when something goes wrong, somebody has to be blamed. Roland Jaffe and and Jake Everts had already dismissed a team of directors who went on to direct Mom and Dad saved the world, that team, whoever they were. So they were already at a point where we can't keep firing the directors because the Directors Guild, which Roland was a member of, they're not crazy about that idea, about career-wrecking moves. So anyway, they they got a hold of Dean Semler, who had just won the Oscar for Dancing with Wolves, and he came in and replaced the first guy. He and I got along great, and he had the same frustrations that I did with Frecky and Annabelle, who were like, yeah, they were micromanaging the movie, everything from costume to makeup, to hair, to art direction, to lenses and filters. I mean, it was was tough. And I think, again, as I say, it didn't matter because we got through that, but the big problem was the changes in script, which can be blamed on, on Disney and their idea of what a movie was, for families. And I, I believe that the sole reason that they brought the film in for distribution was because they wanted the characters for the theme park. And now whatever company has been in business with Nintendo, now they are theme park figures in some format. And I don't know what studio it is. For all I know, it's Amazon. Who knows? Or Netflix. But they own the rights now, and so they're having all the characters. And because the film was a failure, as as far as Disney was concerned, the whole reason for for buying the film was lost. So that's what happened. And and then we, we continued on with our idea of what it was going to be. So... With with Fred and Roland Jaffe's assistant, they pretty much told us to just keep going. So we did. And and the team of designers that we had, everyone was the top people, the construction coordinator, who, who is from North Carolina, because we hired a lot of local people. They did a fantastic job, as good a job as anybody in Hollywood could have ever done, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it was all good. The whole idea is that there's parallel universes. And there's Kuko's world and the so-called world that we live in. And the idea was that everything in the parallel universe was on an electric grid as opposed to fuel fossils. It had something to do with the dinosaurs being part of the fuel fossil run in life. And so it's 
you don't want to run your grandmother as fuel on your car. I think that was the theory from, from Rocky and Annabelle. So everything was on the electric grid. And, and of course, the idea of the electric grid meant that it would weave itself throughout the felt, you know, everything about it. And so we used electricity as, as an inspiration for the sets and the cars and everything else. And let me tell you, it was not easy to put all that together with the electric grid and the cars. It meant a lot of work. It was really tough. And Simon Merton designed all the cars based on like a checker cab and whatever other vehicles we had and, and, and all the police cars. So that's where that came from because they would not use fossil fuels because it was part of their DNA. That's what I think. Fred Caruso. So our director was Rocky Morton and Annabelle Janko, husband and wife team. I've never worked with two directors. I don't know how two directors, and I, I know there are other teams of directors that work, both two men or two women or guy and a gal or whatever, but it didn't work. It just didn't work for us. Rocky and Annabelle were great commercial directors. They directed a show called Max Headroom, and our executives thought that they would be great to bring something unique to this particular picture. But it was always a test on the set as to whether did we like it in blue or did we like it in red, and we ended up with white. So when it was cut, print, no, don't print that one, yes, print that one, no, print the next one, no, let's print the next one. So that was a little different. I mean, they're very talented, but to do this kind of a feature film just didn't work. I know they're still in the business. I know, I think that was the last film they did as a motion picture. I know Rocky's still working, doing commercials and stuff and very successful. So you can't, you can't doubt that, but it just didn't work for us. Jeff Ryan. There's a story from John Leguizamo's book and it uses incredibly foul language that I'm not going to use that you probably don't want on your podcast, but it, Bob Hoskins introduced the husband and wife directing team to John Leguizamo using the two worst words in the English language. When the directors got upset, they would sometimes yell in somewhat creative insults. And the crew, in order to say that this was not acceptable, started to print those those unacceptable words on t-shirts and wear them around set as a reminder, like, you called me this yesterday, now I'm wearing it on my t-shirt today. So maybe don't do that today. The people who are paying money basically wanted a 90-minute toy commercial. And so they were at loggerheads the entire time. And the poor cast and crew didn't know what to do because they weren't sure what sort of movie they were making. And I think they're still not sure. Mojo Nixon, who played Toad. The first movie I was in was Great Balls of Fire. I, you know, I signed up. It was a, a bunch of fellow musicians were auditioning for it for all of it, for the different roles. And uh, my buddy John Doe got in it. We, we were already friends. Here's the thing, my, my movie career, I can't really act. I can't, I wanted to be Tom Waits or Oid Axton, but I just, I can only be this. I, if you want me to do a variation of this, I, that's great. But if you want me to act, you need to go find somebody else. I'm a performer, but I'm like a live performer. Acting is doing a very specific thing, small. Some, somehow, by doing less, you, you get, send more emotion through the screen. Uh, my, my old philosophy is doing more. 
On Super Mario Brothers, Bob Hoskins told me, he goes, on a scale of one to 10, you're hitting 15. You need to start. <laughs> he says, he says, don't do nothing for the first three takes. Do nothing. Just say the words. And then maybe by the third or fourth, give them just a little bit. I'm standing right across from Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper is in fucking, well, not a call to James Dean. I'm trying to get right. But yeah, both Bob Hoskins and John Legasmo were just telling me, dude, dude, just cool out. Because I'm just like red. I'm like white hot. I'm about to explode. That was a good role for me, playing a drunk musician troublemaker. Well, I got that. I'm all over that. <laughs> they did the Super Mario Brothers down in Willington, North Carolina. And this gal I knew who was involved with this band, the Flat Duo Jets, she was the actress casting director. Her name's Laura Mason Cannon. And her and her husband now have a big thing. I, I see her name on the uh, on The Walking Dead. I think they have an office in Atlanta now. But anyway, she she was a fan, a Mojo fan, because of Flat Duo Jets, and she made a documentary about them. And she said they're trying to get Tom Waits, but he won't do it. Or Tom Waits wants too much money. And I said something like, "I but he can get a third rate Tom Waits half price. That'd be me." <laughs> I don't remember going up to L.A. and audition. I don't even think, yeah, they just said, you're in. But then, you know, that, that was a very troubled set. The day I got there, they had fired the, the director of photography. They should have fired the director. The directors were sitting at a picnic table crying. So I knew something. I knew that, you know, things were good. The producer, Roland Joffrey, had the, he had like a, a, an idea, but they were unable, they were unable to see his vision. He told me later, later, he, he said, yeah, this kind of Wizard of the Wizard of Oz kind of children's fantasy idea. That's not exactly what they got. I, mean, I was supposed to get Maddie paid for a week. I ended up getting paid for like four weeks because they kept screwing up. In fact, that scene where my head turns into the lizard. So that's what the second unit. Now the second unit guys, they don't give a fuck. They <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure somewhere behind a wall was a bar in the Twitter. <laughs> A secret bar, and I know the code word, Uchimama, or something. I would have got in there. But uh, so I, I shun all that stuff, and then I was going to fly back to uh, California. And uh, all of a sudden, then somebody, somebody shows up at the plane saying, Oh, no, you got you to shoot it all again. Something went wrong. Some technical thing. Because they had to use some special camera and all. And yeah, that, I don't know what year was that. Was that 91 or something? Like, so somewhere around that, maybe not, somewhere in 92. Yeah, so they had they had the beginning of CGI, but they didn't have all the stuff they have now. And I think I was staying in Wrightsville Beach. It was filmed. It was filmed at a old cement factory outside of Wilmington in Castlehane, which is just north of Wilmington. A lot of those, a lot of those Stephen King movies that had fell down there. In fact, that one he directed, and that was the, the original studio. Was and in fact, that's also why. David Ledge. David Ledge said, I'll do Doom Room if you let me do the crazy movie, which is like shaping my name. If you let me do Blue Velvet, right? So he did Doom for Dino DeLetris, and they built a studio down there. The studio, I think, was originally built for the King Kong remake. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so they had a little, there was a little film community down there in, in Wilmington, but they didn't quite know what they were doing and they didn't quite know what they wanted. There were also, there seemed to be two or three different factors arguing with each other about what direction the movie should go. They, 
But this idea, right? Somebody, somebody's idea, a just very simple idea was, it's a very popular video game. We should be able to make some money. Like the time was literally, that was all the people way up the food chain. That that was all they thought about. But you have to execute the movie. But it's it's weird. The movie wasn't successful, and it was just and it disappointed fantasy fans and video game fans. But because it was, it showed a bunch on TV in the nineties and in the early aughts. It showed on like the on Saturday afternoon on the Odd Channel, not your network channel, but your local cheapo channel. It would show on Saturday afternoon all the time. People talked about it. Kids talked about it all the time because it was a cheap rental. So it cost a lot of money to rent Star Wars on your station, right? It don't cost a lot of money to rent the Super Mario. Mojo Nixon, who played Toad. No, no, that was real. That was real. And, and in fact, my son, the Beast, my older son, he got the same, he went with me to on the shoot one day and he got the same haircut. In fact, I wouldn't show you the picture, but I think my wife gave it gave it to him. No, there was a spiral. My hair was cut real short, and there was a spiral cut into it with a tuft coming out the front. In fact, on one of my earlier albums, I recorded this song, Don't Want No Foo-Foo Haircut on My Head. So when I kicked, went after the movie, we did some shows down in Houston, and I had to start the show with that song just to make fun of, my, fun of myself. But yeah, I don't. And if, yeah, I had to sit there. It took, it took two or three hours to do it the first time. And it took 45 minutes of touch-up each day working on it. And I was sitting there with this guy, one of the other actors, Fisher Stevens. He, was, he had a crazy haircut, too. So we're just sitting there, we're shooting the shit and everything. And it's found out later that he was going out with Michelle Pfeiffer. He didn't mention it once. Well, they had a t-shirt. A sign. Yeah. It was unbelievable. He because we were talking about all kind of things and music and sports and, and girls and everything. So tell me about this. Tell me about that. Because we got you got a lot of time to give, right? And and getting our fancy hair done. And he, yeah, he doesn't mention once. He's living with Michelle Pfeiffer. I am. He would have slipped out. I guess that's why he was living with Michelle Pfeiffer originally. I had my acoustic guitar. I'd brought it with me and. No, it just said in the script something like Toad sings a song. And then, so, you know, I wrote a song and then I played it for him. They go, oh, that's fine. Cause I'm only going to play it a little bit. And then, and then later, and when I'm in the, in the jail, they said, maybe he would sing, maybe a musician might sing a sad song with the harmonic. I said, yeah, I got that. They could do that. And luckily, luckily, Bullethead, my manager, he says, you can copyright these songs. And I still get, I see, I still get a few pennies, as low as the residuals are from Super Mario Brothers, a few pennies still slip in for those two songs that I recorded. Well, cars run on electricity, cause fossil fuel is sacred, you see. Living in a kingdom of fungus, got an evil presence here among us. And we got no food anywhere. What a stinks. And we got no air. Got no resources, we're in a stupor Cause that big old mean evil King Cooper Well, we got Koopas here and Koopas there Pickers of Cooper on the underwear He's a greedy swine, only cares about money But the end is coming and that ain't funny Ain't got no food anywhere What a stinks, so 
sources in a stupor Cause that big old meanie can cook up Sucking it dry, he's a vampire bat with an evil eye. <laughs> Kill King Bowser, Kill King Bowser on May 28th. Got your Goomba guards in a police state. Reptiles need a brand new saver. Maybe you plumbers could do us a favor. Cause we got no food anywhere. Water stinks. And we got no air. Got no resources. A stupor with that big old meanie fucking pooper. Cause that big, he's a big evil egg sucking scaly buddy. Can't goop up. You know what I say? I say, let's castrate the pooper so he can't reproduce Richard Edson, who played Spike. I was very disappointed in Super Mario Brothers. Very, very disappointed because I thought this was 93. So the whole concept of virtual reality was just beginning to, to get out there. And I thought this was the idea of this reality, this digital reality, this virtual reality, was a prime territory to mine and they did a terrible job because they were only thinking in terms of everything was analog basically it was people it's real people acting (laughs) and uh, so they didn't really try anything new and the story was so incoherent in a way because you had all these different writers and some writers were writing it as we were doing it. And you had the two directors who were at each other's throats, sometimes quite literally, so I've heard. And you had a bunch of actors who were being treated really nicely by the Disney company. I did not love the final product. It was a very chaotic shoot. Did they actually, no, they, they fired did they fire the directors, I think? And they brought in this Academy Award-winning cinematographer at the end who knew nothing about directing people. And he, he actually put his hands on me. And he's like, no, stand here. It's like, that's that dude. But he was almost twice as big as me. So I wasn't about to say anything for his first offense. Dean Sandler. I hate Hollywood cinematographers. They're the worst. 
it's not that they're bad. It's that nobody understands what they're doing and how they do it because it's all this technical shit. So they get more time on this, any set I've just by any set I've ever been on than the actors. And it's absurd, but that's that's part of uh, modern day Hollywood, including television, is that production design, set design, costumes are all just the best. Just that they're such professionals. And because those other things, the wardrobe, hair, sets, once they finish their job, it's just you and the director and the camera people. And it's just not fair to the actors that the camera gets so much time to set up the moves, the tracks, the, the lights, and they totally indulge these guys, like Dean Sandler. And they'll make it look beautiful. But from my point of view, the balance is off. It's, it was always off. Sometimes I swear, you would go to wherever, wait to the your trailer or to the snack bar or to just hang out. And you could wait an hour sometimes while the camera people are doing their thing. And then you show up and you get the assistant director to go, oh, look, we've got to hurry up with this. We've got five minutes. <laughs> if you could just do it in five minutes, we like, oh, these motherfuckers. Fish and Steven. He was going out with Michelle Pfeiffer at the time, and, and it was in Broadway all the time and doing movies. He's working a lot, a total professional actor. And uh, he and I bonded right away. It was interesting. Uh, and But they had this table reading. I remember this table reading. And table readings are what you do at the beginning of a shoot or the rehearsal period where everybody gets together and you read the script together. Some movies, you do it before production, but this movie, because everything was so chaotic, we did it. Sometimes when people are flying from all over the world, so they were flying wasn't it Bob Hoskins and the woman that played Dennis Hopper's wife? What was his name? Fiona Shaw, great, great, great British actress. Both, she's trained in with the Royal Shakespeare Company. She worked there. So I was like, what is she doing in this dumb movie? And I'm sure she thought that many times herself. She was given the short shift. She was, she was shown as, Okay, you're the queen, but you're really nobody. <laughs> you don't count. It's like, it's the Dennis Hopper show. <laughs> That's the way things work in Hollywood, Fiona. Sorry. <laughs> but you're getting paid, so shut up. <laughs> oh, and they, so they did these Shakespeare. We would read Shakespeare plays. And we did two. We did Macbeth and The Tempest, yeah. And I've never done Shakespeare. I, I was always turned off by Shakespeare. The language, I tried to get into the flow and the rhythm of the language, and I, and I never could. But it was like, oh, here's a golden opportunity with two English people. And obviously, Bob Hoskins had done some of this, too. Or maybe yeah, he was just faking it. But, and they would give a little, we'd have dinner in this, this, this mansion that had turned into a, like a bed and breakfast would nicer with you have, with own, your own apartment. So we took over the second floor. Some of the actors were staying there and, and we took over the second floor and we would do these readings and it was great with Fiona Shaw leading it. And so she's serious actress. <laughs> Dennis Hopper is, who are you? 
what are you doing here? Oh, yeah, you're my wife. Shut up. <laughs> I don't know if it was that bad, but. Oh, so Fisher Stevens. Now, this is interesting. Fisher was doing that, like I said, he was doing a lot of acting and working all the time. And he comes down, I think he was just coming from a, either a TV series or that end of the last last day and uh, or like a Broadway show. And he was just, um, he can't, I think they partied all the night before, right? And he, he was like, I don't think you even slept. And he came to, he came to the reading, the cold reading. And he, he was like, he was, I think he was still drunk. Or at least he was, no, he, no, he wasn't drunk. He was on like fighting a, fighting a head hangover. <laughs> a serious hangover. So we do the reading and it was interesting because in this one, I, I think it's like everybody waits to see what the stars and leads are going to do in terms of how much acting you can, you don't have to act. You can just read in a normal voice or you can act a little bit or you can experiment, but it's usually the, uh, the lead sets the, sets the uh, speed. And so we're, so Bob Hoskins, luckily he's in the beginning. I think most people just overact. <laughs> and there's, I hate overacting, but I like to think I always, always kind of underact, but, not in this one. <laughs> this one. This one you had to like overact in a way. <laughs> but I'll get to that later. No, it, in fact, that ties into what I was going to say about Fisher is that he came in and oh, so you're doing a table read and we're waiting for Bob Hoskins to start. And he does and he does it completely flat. Completely flat. I had no emotion at all. Just like reading. reading. Now you could read the newspaper with more feeling. But he'll just complete flat. They're all right. I'm going to do flat or do like low key. And everybody's doing it. And I noticed that Fisher was was improvising on his dialogue. And I, and like the scene was about me and him. And if he's improvising his dialogue, that means it's more about him than it is about me and him. And I'm like, Oh, and that, that first moment, I'm like, oh, Fisher is that type of an actor, which which I mean is they're very aggressive in their own self-regard, which I mean, in another way of phrasing, is that they're sincere and that, and that you have to be, and I had experience with them before, and when I was first starting out, and I was like totally shocked and totally pissed off and totally un- had no, no idea of how to deal with it. I was, because it's delicate, you're dealing with, especially at the beginning of a of a of a movie, a relationship that you're gonna have to work with this person, and he seems like a nice guy, but it's like a little too too aggressive in his own behalf, which is another way of saying egomania. No, he wasn't an egomania, but we did we did become really good friends, and because I, I kind of like. I said, just I look, the only way this is going to work between me and you is that we share lines so that we're reacting against each other. You say a line, I say a line. You say a line, I say a line. And I knew, okay, then it would, the way I was thinking, then, then it would be more about um, the scene between us than it is about acting and showing off. That's what I mean, maybe. He shows off. Like, there are some actors that play, play to the camera. And there's other actors who play to the set. 
And if you people who are trained in theater, which most film actors are, they play to the set because they want they, they want the warm bodies to be responding. And I never I was never theater, so I, I was always cameras the thing. And the cameras is what you gotta be conscious of. And I got Fisher on my side and from that point on it was great fun working with them. So we're doing a table read. And at the end of the table read, there was two directors. And this is the first time anybody had met them out of the audition room. Or I'm sure Bob Hoskins didn't have to audition. Maybe you're not feeling sure. But so this is the first time we're together. And we're like, and I'm thinking, what? This is, this is, we're just reading the lines. And a lot of these lines are terrible. That's what I'm thinking. It's like a lot of them is not the lines, but the way what's supposed to happen in the scene. It was just, it was bad. <laughs> it was really bad. So I'm like, okay, we're doing really flat lines, really, really bad lines, really flat. I wonder what the director is going to say. Give us some direction. Okay. How are we going to, how are we going to approach you, et cetera, et cetera. So at the end of the table read, we're like this silence. Everybody's finished and we're waiting. And, and then both of them saw Nadi and, oh, that was great. And I, and that, that's what I thought. We were in trouble. And I was very, what's the word, prescient in that regard? Yes, I was. <laughs> because it was, I've, I've never been on a movie that was so fucked up. <laughs> a big movie. I don't even think a little one. <laughs> That's a lot. I, I've been on. I, I was in a lot. Okay, it's perfectly segues into this story because we're dealing with our the first scene and the dialogue is terrible. And it's like Fisher knew it. I knew it. I, I said Fisher. I said, why don't we write our own scene and we'll show them <laughs> that anything we do is going to be ten times better than what's written. But we'll do that scene first. And he agreed. And he thought that was a great idea. And so we show up on the set, and unfortunately, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning, or maybe 3.30 in the morning, and we have to do our scene. And it's a scene when in a taxi cab. I don't know if you remember this. It, it was, we were in a taxi, and it was a street scene. It was a night, right? We're in the cab with Fisher, and we got both these scenes. We got their scene, and we got our scene. And, oh, I went up to the directors. At this point, I knew these directors were way out of their depth. And I knew there was a lot of tension between the two of them. And they would, they would, I don't know at this point, but at some point, they would give us completely contrary direction. Okay, you enter the room really fast. <laughs> the other one was, no, you enter the scene really slowly. <laughs> and we're, it was like, we're just going to do what we're going to do, which they, which they loved anyway, which given their Lack of ability, <laughs> lack of ability, their perceptions wouldn't be very valuable <laughs> of us acting, I mean. So we're sitting in the car. So I, I go up to Annabelle, I think, and I ask, I ask, I said, look, we, we did, we didn't like, we didn't like the dialogue. I know we're having trouble with the dialogue. We prepared your scene and our scene. And can we do it? I was really nervous going up and asking her. And uh, I was afraid she'd turn us down. And then I would be like, oh, fuck, we got to do only that. But she said, great. 
But the problem was, it was again, it was three thirty, ten to quarter to four, and I was, I could see the sky just beginning to light up, and I knew if we lost the night, that we'd never do it. But we did that, which was terrible, and then we just got, I don't know, maybe one shot, one take, maybe, maybe, maybe two, but we did it, and they loved it. They loved, it. and from that moment on. We wrote all our own dialogue, Fisher and I, and they and they and they loved it, and they they never. I think it was I think scriptwriters say no, that's working. And that was one less headache. The directors were saying no, that's working. One less headache because we tried to be funny. We tried. My thing, and it's always been this way, was I always wanted to explore the the physical dimension of of film. And and by that I mean, within a frame there are a lot of different things going on, and within the actor there's a lot of different things going on, and and most of the time, acting is about talking, and 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 that's why there's so much dialogue, and and there's not that kind of comedy is one example, slapstick is an example. Horror films do it really well. Some thrillers do it really well. But that, but a lot of that is more about the effects than it is about people. I wanted to do more physical, physical stuff. And, and I really only got, and I like physical. I like to explore things with the physical. Even gestures and facial expressions are physical. The body movement, into interacting with the environment, with things, that's all physical. Even with Fisher. If you notice, he's doing stuff. He built some of his character or the idea that we both thought of this. That, or no, this is in the script about being being evolved from reptiles. So he bought a little, I think, lizard, and he bought and he studied the movements of the lizard. And so he incorporated those movements. You'll see his head movements, his arm movements. He used the model of his. That Michelle Pfeiffer eventually came down and uh, took care of. <laughs> Lizzie got sick, and she had some time to come down to Wilmington. And she spent the whole time finding a veterinarian for this. Yeah, for this lizard. She was she was determined, boy, to get that lizard back in health. All right, so yeah, so I thought that was a really fun part, and this brings me back to the point about. Super Mario Brothers, the movie, is that it was so conventionally written and conceived that I thought they missed this huge opportunity that they had with this whole concept of falling into different dimensions. But it was more like the game. The game was like these portals put them instantly into these different realms. And like one after the other, and and things are also moving very quickly. And the movie just plotted along, and it wasn't you didn't have this this whole digital you know, multi dimensional space that was possible if they conceived this right. I was always so disappointed, really, that it was such a wasted opportunity not to come down too hard on this. But you know, it was a bomb. Just this one story, Fisher. And Samantha Mathis was sharing a beach house. Wilmington is a city, and then off of the city is a beach you have to cross over to on, on bridges. 
And that's some parts are no, it's, it's a distance, like two miles from the shore or something. That's where I got lost <laughs> in that, in that area. Um, and they were living on the island. And Fisher had the top apartment where he had the cage with Iggy, his lizard. His, because he, he named it Iggy because he was Iggy. So that makes sense that he named Lizard Iggy. Anyway, and that's where he saved Michelle, who bad the thought of this lizard suffering and dying. And, and Samantha lived on the apartment below. Beautiful old house. And Samantha had like an afternoon party get together, whatever, pretty active and whoever. And I go to the house and I, I'd been there before, not in her place, but upstairs in Fisher's. And uh, I go, what's that? To a door. And I'm looking around. I'm nosy, so I want to see everything. <laughs> and I'm like, what's that? And I said, that's the door to the basement. But you don't want to go down there. <laughs> and I say, why not? And she says, hmm. Something happened down there. And I, I said, what? He said, all right, just go down there. And I, I what? This is too... And she said it kind of serious, not, not humorously, serious, but I mean, maybe as serious as Samantha can be. But I go down there, and about the fifth floor, then maybe it's 10 steps. The fifth floor, it started to get really cold. And by the time I was on like the ninth step, it was really cold, and I was feeling, I was feeling something really creepy, and I just, I'm not gonna spend any more time. <laughs> I'm just going upstairs, shutting the door, going to Samantha. I'm like, Samantha, what the fuck? What is that? And she said, the story is that somebody was killed down there like 50 years ago, and I'm like, I can believe it. But it, it was a strange, strange feeling. Of course, I've never forgotten it. It's 30 years later. Never forgotten it. I said, Samantha, I'm like, how come How come you're not freaked out? You live here. And she goes, I just never go down there. Yep. Oh, I have one more story. This is, I had this house. It had four bedrooms. So my sister, I invited my sister to come down with her two boys and her husband. And it was just, I think they drove down part of a bigger trip and they had to stay here for a couple of days. And they came down during a weekend, the one weekend, or maybe a three day weekend anyway. It's easy to put them up. And I took, I think one day, two days, they just explored. One day they came to set. I took, came to set and their little kid, Eric, was five years old. And I'm taking him around. I'm introducing him. I'm showing him the set. He's just loving it. And I show me. <laughs> I introduced him to the Goombas because they were acting that day and, and he just loved it. And then I remember that Goombas had a private masseuse because you know, they had the, they had to carry those things on their necks and it was heavy. They could get massage and I ran it and I said, oh yeah, come down when, when they're not working. I love to give massage. So I said, oh, this is perfect opportunity. I went in and I said, Terry, this is incredible that I even thought this. I said, you just sit here. I'll be on it. I'll be in there in a moment. <laughs> and I let him sit out there for like 45 minutes. And I came out feeling great. And he's sitting in a chair, like, in a corner, and he's crying. And I realized what had happened. And I, I don't think he's ever forgiven me. No, he has. Yeah, that, I was like, 
kind of made my favorite nephew cry. And he was really freed. And I just begged his forgiveness. I think, I think he had. So we had a lot of time on our hands. And so my sister could come down for three days and I could make my nephew cry. And I think it was my idea. I'm like, look, they're having a show with none of the cast in the show. It's just all dancers or whatever they were. So let's do a rap to the music they're playing. And we we knew what they were playing, or did we? I think we did. What they play at that show? You remember? Wait, didn't we? Were we on stage to begin with? So it was my idea, and with the same principle of with Fisher, that we just broke it down. I had a verse, he had a verse, and we started trading lines, and then we did the chorus together, refrain, whatever they call it. So we had it all planned, and then it wasn't their idea. And then we took a boombox, and a day or so before, now we're really confident because they loved everything we're doing. So we're doing the rap. So we, we take the boombox to them. It was between a scene that we, we were shooting that we weren't in. And we go, Annabelle, Rocky, check this out. We turn on the music, and people around are like, what's going on? And then we start the rap. And then everybody stopped. And by the time we were done, there were like 25 people there and everybody was clapping. That's how we got to do it. And it was just set into it. And, and we were, I was disappointed that it was, didn't make the final cut, but it wasn't my decision. Nobody was asking me. Do you realize what our society has become? Yeah, we get the feeling you're on automatic pilot. You're going through the motions like waves in the ocean. That life is a series of brainless notions, and you want to feel something more than empty emotions. When we met two plumbers who had an idea, they showed us the light and the new frontier. Mario and Luigi, they know what right. We gotta take a stand and put up a fight. Well, stop. And they disprove. It's time to get rid of you, you know, know who. who. A radical development is taking place, Iggy. and Spike well, will set the pace. Co-producer and unit production manager Fred C. Caruso. There was a young man who worked for us whose father was running Disney at the time. And so he called his dad and said, you got to come to Wilmington, North Carolina and come and take a look at the picture, which they did of what we had filmed so far. We put a sizzle reel together and they loved the sizzle reel. And based upon that, Disney decided they were going to pick up the picture and distribute the picture. That's how that happened. So we were pretty fortunate and that happened. Production designer and second unit director, David L. Snyder. I can't remember Jeffrey Katzenberg ever coming back during the shooting of the show because, of course, he was running Disney, running a company, lots of projects. When I tried to think of who was running the picture, I guess you'd have to say that Fred Caruso was running the picture for Roland Jaffe and, and Jake Everts, who probably came maybe once or so, I don't know. And, of course, he... He was a made producer. Jake Edwards wrote a book called My Indecision is Final about making films. 
like Watership Down was the first film that he ever produced. He chipped in $5,000 and got a bunch of people to chip in. He created a giant company, an entertainment company that made lots of films. It was up to Fred. I have to say that Roland had other pictures going. Jake had a big business to run. And and Fred pretty much was in charge of the picture. And I could go in and, and plead with him. And if I came in with a good case or a good reason, he was sympathetic in a way, but he was bound to to make the movie at the budget. But he did care. He he would say things like, hand him a, a list with a number on it. And he would say, this is really neat. The nice three columns, and it looks really good. And then he would take a pen and say, okay, now he would write a number out of papers. It really looks good. Now, when it gets back to this number, bring it back to me. He did it in such a way that it was fun. And by the way, outside of whatever problems there were, everybody who was head of department kind of people, we all had beach houses in Wilmington, North Carolina. We went out to eat all the time, went to the beach. We had the greatest time aside from that. But it was frustrating. And I remember one point, at one point, I think I wrote a, a three-page memo to Rocky and NML to, to tell them what I thought they should be doing. In my place, I did it anyway. And and I would get letters from people on the crew, like the property department or set dressing, and they would write me memos on what's wrong with the set and why wasn't this, and I saw the daily. So the, there was a lot of conflict. And I think at one point, when Dennis Hopper and Bob Hoskins and Fiona Shaw and, let's see, Samantha Mathers, Johnny Lee, they get their pages for what we're going to do on the day of shooting. Not good. Dennis, and Dennis was furious, really. He, he was the guy that was the most disturbed by it. Not that Bob wasn't, but there were threats of resignation by the cast. I'm going home. Do this anymore. And it's too bad because what it meant was no one was ever going to make a, a motion picture, a theatrical motion picture about Nintendo. Screenwriter Parker Bennett. We went home and we had made friends with, I guess, Jake's assistant named Lenny Young. And Lenny was in our camp. We befriended him and we wanted to keep in touch. So we kept tabs on the production through Lenny. And we didn't know how many writers they went through, but it was, it was a lot. They started with this weird draft that was like a metaphysical road movie that was basically modeled after Rain Man. And it, so much so that it was jokingly called Drain Man in the office. And then Greg Beeman came on board as the director who did Mom and Dad Save the World. And then they saw Mom and Dad Save the World and they canned that. And Jim Genoa and Tom Parker, yeah. There's a lot of good stuff in their draft, but it was a kid's movie. And then there was us. And then they had a friend from their Max Headrooms days named George Stone, who I know worked on something. They needed to like find an A-list guy. And they got the peop- the writing team who did the replacements, I think, and high, high-end British comedy writing team. And based on those guys, their draft, it was a little more diehard in its tone, but it was sufficiently interesting enough to, to a lot of additional cast people that they came on board. So Fiona Shaw saw that draft and she she came on board for that, based on that. And at this point, the cast was pretty much set and they still didn't really have a draft. And so three weeks before the movie is supposed to start filming, Ed Solomon and, and his partner, Ryan Rowe, they're hired to basically stay up all night for three weeks 
for two weeks or whatever it was and, and write the final shooting draft, cobbling together our draft and the diehard draft and whatever they needed to make things make sense. And the, the, the frustrating thing I think for all screenwriters is that the process is inherently flawed by design. It's like you, you, like when we came in, the, the producer said, we like the first act of this draft Jim Genoan and Tom Parker, and I'm like, you could just keep that. No, not really. You can't can't set up. It's the setup of a movie. It's going to have to pay off from that setup. We weren't even encouraged to keep jokes or anything from a previous draft because it doesn't help. It doesn't help us. It's actually more work to try to work in things from a previous draft than to start fresh. And I think Ed Solomon did a lot of starting fresh, and and kept, there were things that were locked in from our draft just because they built the sets, and they designed the creatures, and they. That there was a basic basic thought, which is Koopa needs something from Daisy. Okay, she's got a pendant. It's a piece of the meteorite, and if he gets it, he can merge the dimensions. That's his goal, and that was that was there from our draft. And then mishmashes of things later, Ed Solomon, and then his partner bows out, and he stays on set for a week, and they get as close as they can with a draft. David Snyder. I've been a friend of Ed Solomon since Bill and Dead. He would come and sit on the set and look around, and he, and and at the end of the day, like I said, when a script is a compromise, one well, of the movies is going to suffer. That's what I think. Fred Caruso, Ed Solomon, I believe, was the guy who wrote the final screenplay. Who's a fairly successful screenwriter in, in today's world. He wrote the screenplay. You saw the movie, shot what he wrote, and that was it. And that's the one that Roland Joffe agreed to be the one that was the best of all. His was the one that we thought was the best of all. Screenwriter Ed Solomon. Well, I don't remember what year it was. I was basically like the Bill and Ted guy or one of the Bill and Ted guys with Chris Matheson. And I had always wanted to do more work of more depth. And my agent calls me one day and says, are you a fan of Roland Joffe? And I was like, he'd just done the mission in Killing Fields. And I was like, yeah, why? He would like to meet with you. And I was like, wait, do you have the right client here? You're talking to me, right? And they're like, yeah, he wants to meet with you. And I said, what about? And I had a very high <laughs> expectation. We don't know, and he won't say, is, is what they said. But they said, they'll tell you in the room. So I met with, I don't remember where, but I went to somewhere and I met with Roland and his producing partner, Ben Myron, and a guy named Jake, Jake Eberts, who was a financier. And Jake had just done these I think the, a river runs through it, like a series, one after another of these really, really beautiful high-end films. And I remember going in and going, oh my God, it's like these guys. And I said, what is it you're talking about? And they said, well, we have the rights to the video game, Super Mario Brothers. And I was like, wait, wait what? Wait, wait, oh, and I just remember thinking, you're kidding me, right? And they said, but do you know Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jekyll? They just did Max Headroom. And I was like, you're, you're kidding. And, I, and they go, yeah, we want to do this really high-end thing. And I said, what do you need? And they said, well, the problem is we, meaning Jake, had put like all, or I don't know if he put his money in. He had gotten investors. Like all this money sunk into this independent film, but we don't have a distributor. And we just need someone to get the script lined up. We get a distributor so that we don't lose all this money. So I guess... There had been several scripts, and the script they gave me was this hodgepodge of scripts by three or four or five different people put together. I don't know who put it together, 
And if you said a sentence and I said a sentence and we recorded someone across the street saying a sentence and then someone in the supermarket and then we put them into a paragraph, that's what it was like. It was that weird jumbled up mess. I, in hindsight, I think I know who had put that cut and paste together. I read it. I really wanted to make it work for them. And Jake had said to me, I actually originally said, I don't think it's something I can do. And Jake said, do you want to direct? And I said, I would love, not, not this movie, but in your future, do you want to direct? And I said, yeah, there's a project I've been thinking about for years. And he said, just so you know, if you do this for me, I'll, I'll get behind that script for you to direct. And I was like, wow, okay, all right. I looked at the amount of work that I thought needed to be done and I couldn't possibly handle it. I was only hired for two weeks. Not possible. So I called my friend Ryan Rowe, he's a brilliant guy and a, just a great guy and a good friend. And I was like, dude, I'll give you some of this money. And we split, the, split up the money somehow. And I just said, help me with this. We're trying to do this for Roland and Jake and Ben. We just sat down and together did a, a, a draft and turned it in. And I'll be honest, it's the first and only time in my entire career I got a bonus that I didn't ask for. They gave me a little bonus, like 10% or something like that. And this, because Disney picked it up, Disney paid for it based on that draft. So I thought I did my job. I felt professionally really proud. I certainly, in a two-week rewrite, the expectation and the understanding is you're not going to be credited. It's just a, a helpful thing here. Take it. They, I guess, a month, two months, three, I don't remember. It's like sometime down the line, I got another call saying, hey, do you mind doing one more week? And Ryan wasn't available. I remember for some reason, I don't remember why. So I just did another week on it. They paid me a little bit of money and I gave it to them. Just like a polish of some things per Disney. I think Disney had some notes and that was it. And then I got a call what, six weeks later or a month I, or two months. I don't remember. But again, like down the line, panic, help. We're in the first week of production. Nobody knows what is going on. The script, you won't recognize it. And I was like, okay, what do you need from me? Could you just come down like, and do some scenes or get the actors are freaking out, special effects is freaking out, visual effects is freaking out. Nobody, art department, nobody knows what to do. They don't know what shit script they're shooting. I was like, I don't know what I can offer. And they go, Dennis Hopper's in it, and Bob Hoskins is in it, and John Leguizamo's in it, and it was Richard Edlin was in it, and Fisher Stevens, and all these just one after another, really interesting actors and actresses. And I was like, wait, really? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, I guess I've come down. And they said, oh, the only thing is we don't have any money you. And I'm like, then exactly why would I do this? I did my job two, three months ago, four months, whenever it was. They said, maybe we could work something out. And I said, look, I'm fried. I tell you what, for every day I do, or I have two days for me and my girlfriend of vacation. If I thought, all right, so if I do a week, I'll get a two-week vacation for me and my girlfriend. I thought, okay, and that's probably, I'd get a nicer vacation than I would have ever gotten for myself because they'll probably fly me in a nice first class or something and I would never be able to do that myself. So I thought, oh, maybe that'll be worth it. So I was down for about 10 days, I think, maybe a week, a week to 10 days, something like that. And I got down there and it was like something you couldn't fathom, just like a strange, chaotic nightmare. And I remember Annabelle was super nice, really supportive and apologetic. She's like, I'm sorry about what happened. And like, I was like, what happened? What do you mean? And I, I went in and I met with Rocky and I looked and he had the script just laid out 
they've done another giant cut and paste of all the different drafts from all these different writers. And I was just like, I don't think this works in any way. I think they were in a panic and everyone was doing this desperate move, this desperate, we got to fix this, we got to fix it. And then they were like throwing good money after bad. There was never a moment where people thought this is actually working. As far as I could tell, often in a movie situation like that, there's a camp that's really feels like it's going well. And there's a camp that doesn't. And then there's like infighting. And you're, sometimes your role is to be airdrop down and you're basically doing shuttle diplomacy between these camps, which has happened on quite a few of these types of jobs. This one, I don't recall anybody thinking anything other than this is an absolute disaster in the making, honestly. With these amazing talent, like David Snyder's production design was quite remarkable. And we we got friendly during that 10-day or whatever it was period only because he. I remember him walking me through one of the sets and I remember me going, I'm the, the director, so I don't know, but maybe this. And he's it's just so nice to be able to talk to somebody about this. I, again, I don't know what the dynamic between Rocky and Annabelle was. I liked Annabelle a ton. She was super nice and appreciative. Rocky was infuriated with me, I remember. When I got down, he was livid that I was there. I remember coming in thinking, I'm here to help. And I remember him looking at me like I had destroyed his masterpiece. I thought my draft at least had coherence, the draft Ryan and I did. We did the best we could. But he was just like, you know, you took this out, you took that out, you put that in. I took that out. You you put this back. It was, yeah, it was, it was really awful. And I, I was appreciating the experience of observing it. I remember thinking, wow, I'm, I'm watching something very unusual happening in front of my eyes. And I remember learning a lot and feeling like, wow, I'm learning firsthand on a production level about what should be happening by seeing what shouldn't be happening. But I also had this feeling like, I don't know if there's anything I can do about any of this. There's a great idea, which was, what if humans had evolved from reptiles instead of mammals? And I thought, fascinating concept. But there was no consistency. There was no character work. The actors were running around like chickens with their heads cut off, no idea what was happening. And I just, as I remember, I think I wrote some, whatever they were shooting on that day, I would help them write a scene and then go to dinner with, I went to dinner with Dennis Hopper twice, which was amazing for the most part. I remember saying, wow, I'm having dinner with Dennis Hopper, thinking, and I remember asking him, you've been directing some really interesting movies. Like, how does this stuff come to you? And he just looks at me across the table, gets really close and he goes, I'm one of the best directors in America, man. And I went, Oh, all right. You know, I met Bob Oscar. I don't remember if we went out. I, I had a dinner with John Wazama, who's super nice. Samantha was incredibly nice. But that was it. Fred Caruso. They were very talented and so on, but just didn't click enough with the crew and didn't click enough with the actors. And it was like a 12-week shoot. I believe it was something like 12 weeks or 14-week shoot. And at the end of nine or 10 weeks, we were halfway there. We were behind schedule every day. And Roland and Jake Eberts. And I would report to them every day and to Ben every day. All right, guys, here we are. What do you want to do? Here we are. What do you want to do? You got to keep going. You know, the, 
And they said, Roland, why don't you take over the movie? You know, you're a director. You got an Academy Award. You got to take over this movie. We're in fucking trouble. No, I can't do that. Then the company looks bad. Then it looks like that we can't trust any directors. And Roland didn't want to do that because he, he just felt it wasn't the right thing to do. Parker Bennett. We heard a little of this through Lenny. And we thought, you know, what? let's just go. Let's go check it out. And so we got in Terry's 56 Dodge something or other. Like he collected vintage cars. We drove cross country from Chicago to Wilmington, North Carolina, to the abandoned cement factory that had the mishap in the Crow, where tragically Brandon Lee accidentally got shot. So this place already has a kind of not great history. And we show up, and again, luck, the directors come out, they're beaming. We must have seemed good at this point because they hadn't had a great experience after we left. And we were giant fans of theirs and would do whatever they told us. And so he came, Rocky came out and says, oh, good, you're here. We're looking, we just happened to need a couple of pencils to make some adjustments, small adjustments to the draft, which we later learned was from the producers would cut anything you possibly can out of the draft that hasn't been shot yet because they're $25 million over budget. So we are on set doing the best we can, cutting things and trying to make it make sense. And we made a couple of fatal flaws. One was if Dennis Hopper has already memorized something, you don't, you don't cut a few sentences out of it. The, The return on that is low. So there was a day on the set where we get hurriedly rushed to the dressing to the to the makeup place where Dennis Hopper is throwing a huge fit and we are called on the carpet for making these slight changes to some big speech he had that he'd already memorized and he he hollered at us for about 20 minutes and he made me go and get a dictionary he made somebody go get a dictionary and made me look up the word act and read it out loud and and it was our job at this point to take the fall for the directors. Oh, so sorry, Mr. Hopper. Yeah, we won't do that again. So you haven't lived until Dennis Hopper has hollered at you for half an hour. And it was, if you've read anything about the production, it was utter chaos. It was 110 degrees with no air conditioning. The sound recording was, was, was so suboptimal, they wound up basically looping the entire movie. The effects were good. The set was great. The people doing the onset rod puppeting of the of Yoshi and the Goombas, the practical effects were fantastic. The directors were a little adrift in terms of the story because it had never been locked down. It was really hard to blame them. So they were really focused on whatever they could focus on, which often involved how straight the wash towels were in the bathroom set of Cooper. Like they, they were like very fussy about the art direction and the and less so about the they didn't give the actors much to work with. And so the actors got grumblier and grumblier. And more and more they took it up like Richard Edson and Fisher Stevens, they realized, oh, if we don't improv stuff here, our best chances of doing anything good in this movie are basically we're just gonna we're gonna riff and we're gonna improv and stuff. So they did that. Fisher Stevens was was in Mystery Day. So that was another connection to us. We, we'd recommended him. He, he played the insane flower boy, flower delivery boy in Mystery Date. And Richard Edson is, is a national treasure, and we were lucky enough to hang out with him and on set. That was fun. We heard nothing from Bob Hoskins. Fiona Shaw called me in and mistakenly thought that I had written the previous draft, that the, the famous 
British comedians, comedy writers had written. And so she, and I didn't dissuade her. <laughs> like, I didn't, oh, yes. Yeah. And because she was, she was angling for like more screen time and better stuff. And she was, she was making her pitch to do more. And based on the draft she read, there was more for her to do. And so we were, we were cognizant of that. We tried to adjust a little of that while we were there. But the movie, it just, they got through it, basically. They got through the production of it. I think Rocky and Annabelle left the production in the second unit, uh, finished major chunks of the ending. We spitballed the, the end where Koopa <laughs> ducks down in the bucket and then comes up as a giant dinosaur head because we didn't have the budget to do anything else. And, and we just made it goofy. Let's make this as goofy as we can. There's a little bob that you wind up and it takes forever to waddle its way across a, a walkway. And we played everything for laughs and it was what, what it was. When the movie came out, when the movie premiered, I invited my mother to a premiere screening and she came out afterward and said it was the worst movie she'd ever seen in her life. It's like your own mother, but it wasn't really a lot of our script. We punched up jokes and we cut things and we came up with original basic themes and characters and, and story points. But the words that people were saying were mostly from Ed Solomon and Ryan Rowe and, and who knows what else, where they cobbled their script from. Fred Caruso. So at the end of nine weeks or 10 weeks, we finally said to Rocky and Annabelle, you got to go home. You got to get out of here. And our cinematographer, Australian guy, Dean Semler, big time guy whom we hired, he finished directing the last four weeks of the movie. Yes, we had Rocky and Annabelle do all the post-production. They weren't really fired. They were just let go and let Dean finish the last four weeks of filming. But even in post-production, Rocky and Annabelle took absolutely forever. The picture went over budget by quite a few million dollars because we were overscheduled during production and overscheduled during post-production. It's just the way it was. I couldn't control it because it wasn't my job to do that. And Jake and and Roland said we have to let them go. We have to let let them continue. We we can't fire them and so on. It looks bad for Roland because he can't take over every. It was a production company. They were thinking they were going to produce a half a dozen movies, and it wouldn't look good if every movie doesn't work right that Roland's going to take over. So we just let him continue to do it. They're very nice people. Rocky and Annabelle were very pleasant, very nice, but just didn't work. Visual effects supervisor and second unit director, Chris Woods. They knew that it was in trouble, that it was over budget. Jake Eberts, the guy who had financed it with Path A money, was just a prince of a man. And I think people really wanted to make sure that he got it done. He, had to, he already had to go back and get a lot of additional money. I think the movie ended up being like 50% over budget. So to have to go back to indie financing, and, and that's not a story you want to tell. Now, he had just come off of driving Miss Daisy and Dances with Wolves, which he did by back-end financing. With. He had the stripes to, to, to be where he was with us. Obviously, Mario Brothers didn't increase didn't his, his bankability. But he he was just such a solid guy. He also he founded Goldcrest when they did the first first films they did right out of the gate with Putnam were uh, and, and Jake was president of Goldcrest were the Killing Fields and Chariots of Fire and Gandhi. So yeah, Jake was a quality guy and people knew it. You could tell it. He was just a 
really somebody who had integrity in a business that does not always have people with integrity and, and, and also quality and taste. One thing I got to do is give a big shout out to the crew. We end, I ended up hiring about 30 people who worked for a good year or somewhere between a year, year and a half, a lot of them running seven, seven days a week with all those 10 flames <coughs> in the marina, a little facility that I set up. And that was some of the most fun also was I realized, okay, there's, since we have new equipment, by definition, there's nobody that knows how to use this equipment. There are no experts. So what are, what are we going to do? And we need new techniques. So how is this all going to work? And I came up with something which seemed obviously like a good way to go to me at the time, which was I split the difference. And so half the people I got, and they were top-notch people in the traditional techniques, but had an interest in learning digital technology. So rotoscopers and map painters and other people that had traditional backgrounds that were very deep in, in film visual effects. And then I had to go and find people like Bob Schiefo, for instance, had been the head of the math department at, at DreamQuest. And how could I hire Bob Schiefo away from a, an established visual effects company in that day it was? to come on board a, a one-off VFX facility because he knew that this was going to be the future and he jumped at the opportunity to getting in to get in on it. Jesse Silver was, was another mad painter who's worked on the film. And but Bob is just a phenomenal talent. Jesse's very good as well. Um, and in the beginning of the show, Bob was still using his brushes on probably stretched canvas or maybe board or something like that. And then we'd photograph it, 35 millimeter, and then do digital compositing. By the end of the show, probably a year later, maybe a little more, like I say, he never touched his brushes on the last few shots because he'd learned Photoshop. And that was one of the most interesting things to me was I'd known people that were good in Photoshop and various levels, and, and we had a lot of good Photoshop experts, the practitioners on that show. It was just fascinating to me. Again, maybe this isn't anything but obvious, but it's still fun to see it happen and, and watch it evolve, to watch a guy who's amazing with his brushes and with this one medium, and then see what he does with the new digital technology. Because, of course, if, you, if you're an artist and you've got that eye and that eye-to-hand coordination and those capabilities, they, they transferred so phenomenally into what he could do in the pure digital realm. And it was really exciting to see that. Dean Semler, who had worked with Jake Eberts on Dances with Wolves, was the guy who re replaced this, the first DP on Mario Brothers. So all of a sudden, we have this guy who's just won an Academy Award as our DP. And, and by the way, Peter Levy was the first DP, and he was, he was fine. They, they got rid of him because of political reasons. It wasn't his fault that, that he needed to be get, getting gone, but... Sometimes a shot across the bow was meant to give a, a message to somebody else. I remember, I'm going to try and soft pedal it because I'm really not out to get anybody. I loved everybody on the film. But a, a great line that, that Fred had that I, I remember, he said he had to go to Jake and, and Roland, the two producers of this, one weekend. And he said, figure something out. Like, I wish I could sugarcoat it, but we're going to have to make some real changes here. We are one weekend. We are one week behind and that isn't a stark. So the next morning we hear, hey, Dean Sambler is going to be our DP. Peter's gone. And that's how they dealt with that one. But anyway, yeah, Dean, 
there's nothing like a great DP. Just again, all the departments are fabulous. You need them all, absolutely. But but certainly a truly talented DP. And Dean, again, another guy, just a prince of a guy. I remember I went up again, as I told you, this is my first job as a freelancer. And we're lining up one of the big shots and we're up on a roof in the, in the cement factory for a big wide shot. And I'm very differential to, I'd worked with big DPs before, but still I, I, I've got a much bigger portfolio, so to speak, than I'd had. And I hadn't worked with big DPs at the level that I was working with Dean on. And so I was very differential to him. And I said, you tell me, Dean, where are we going? What do you want to do? Tell me how you want to approach it. And he goes, mate, he's Australian now. And of course, uh, from Road Warrior fame too. And he goes, mate, you tell me, you're going to be teaching me about visual effects. I've never done it before. So you you tell me, what are we doing? And I was like, holy shit, I can't believe it. Parker Bennett. It came out. It tanked, and luckily for us, again, luck, another movie came out that summer that was an even bigger flop called The Last Action Hero. And it was like a renowned flop that took the wind out of the sails of our movie being the flop of the, of the summer. They had skimped on special effects. They made their own team of special effects people headed by Chris Woods, who gathered people who could do basic digital things and push the envelope as much as they could instead of spending the money on ILM which I guess they couldn't have done because ILM was busy making Jurassic Park. So our movie comes out with the dinosaurs and they're really not good and dumb. And then Jurassic Park comes out and says, oh yeah, this is what you could have done, but we didn't. One of the reasons we got the job is that we knew nothing about the game because the directors, that was their big thing. We don't want to do the game at all. That's what, that's what tripped up the other director. That's what tripped up the previous incarnation because they, it was so literal to the game, the previous one, that they became, it had to be a kid's movie. It was just like, yeah, if there's talking rocks, it's a kid's movie. If there's mushrooms and princesses and, and kings and, and a, all that stuff, they didn't want to make a kid's movie and they didn't want to make it too literal to the game. We had a cheat sheet that Nintendo had given us of the characters from the game. So we knew the characters. So we would, we would want to do as much fan service as we could. And we'd gotten a Super Nintendo system in the office and I became hooked immediately because I was that I'm not only ADHD and apparently fairly addictive. And so I stayed up late playing Super Mario Brothers and I became sort of heart like we have to do more. We have to reference more about the game and the, the thing. We have to be can't just do lip service. So we have to include characters just willy nilly. Oh Toad, he he's Toad. He plays the harmonica and he's he's we'll just include, he's a character named Toad and oh, we had the jumping boot, the thromp stoppers. That was that was the way they could they could do the jumping because that was obviously key to the game and the bombs and the and I had uh, I had lots of things that didn't make the cut like I thought in this world there's like Koopa coins and there's these boxes and the criminal element know how to hit the box just the right way to get the tube to break and spill out coins and so it would be a little little reference to the game the boxes with the coins give you coins that didn't make the cut. There's an extended golf sequence in our draft based on some other offshoot game that had a golf golfing element. So there's like a desert, basically one big sand trap in the desert. That was the Koopa's golfing course. And that got cut. I think there might be, there might be a reference. I can't remember if the reference to it got cut. Yeah. So I was the one pushing, you know, Hey, we got to do, 
more because I had become a fan of the game of playing it. But I think one of the reasons we got the job was these guys aren't big fans of the game. They're not going to be worrying about it. And that was the big thing. The directors, and you can tell from the movie, the directors had no interest in making this movie about the Nintendo, the super game, the game that we know of as Super Mario Brothers. They they were just using that as a scaffolding for this, this idea of theirs. And, you know, years later, I became a Doctor Who fan. And I would like watching the old episodes with the Silurians. I realized, oh, you know what? This plot device from Doctor Who, where the dinosaurs evolve into humans in a parallel dimension, seems awfully familiar. I wonder if the directors were Doctor Who fans, because it does seem very remarkably similar now looking back. But at the time, I, I had no idea. It sounded genius. It was literally, I thought it was genius. Ed Solomon. Actually, I had not played the game. I knew what it was, obviously. But I, no, I, I would say I wasn't the fan. But I knew I needed to watch it, and they'd given me a, a it was a Nintendo machine, and with the game and stuff. I lived in Silver Lake, and my house was went. You had to go downstairs to get to the house because on the side of the hill, it's going down. Little house, but I had a garage on the street with a basketball hoop, and I used to go shoot hoops in the afternoon, take a break. And there was a kid named I think his name was Ben, and Ben was like thirteen. And Ben would ride his bike home from school. And sometimes Ben would stop and we'd shoot hoops together. And we'd talk and stuff. And, and then he'd go home. And then one day we're shooting hoops. And I go, start to go back down. And I go, oh, wait, Ben, do you know Super Mario Brothers? And he's oh, yeah. And I go, do you play it? He goes, yeah. Then I go, all right. All right with you if I walk to your house with you. Because I'm not going to invite Ben down into my house. He's a kid. So I walked to his house. Actually, I remember it was probably had to have been five or six. I remember his dad was home from work. So I remember I talked to both parents. I knock on the door. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ed. Ben comes by my house. <laughs> we shoot hoops. I know this might seem super weird. I wanted to ask you guys, is it okay if I have Ben come over and he shows me how to play the game? And his dad's, thank you for asking. Absolutely. But it was pretty funny. Like, it was even then, <laughs> I knew I've just. <laughs> I'm going to invite a 13-year-old down into my house. But it was, yeah, that was how I learned it, basically, was Ben showed it to me. And uh, actually, his dad came over one day, too, and played. We were like, hey, we're playing. I'm getting good at this. You should come down. It was pretty funny. I remember his last name. I don't have no idea where he's now. He's probably a grandfather at this point. <laughs> then I went two months later or something on vacation that they had actually... I, they made good. They, but oh, at that time, my girlfriend was occupied and like at work and couldn't go on this vacation. So I said, hey, it's just going to be one person. So instead of, I think I'd work, maybe if I'd worked 10 days, maybe it was going to be a 10-day vacation for two. Whenever it was, I don't remember. Two, I ended up having like a, almost a month of vacation, which was fantastic because she couldn't go. So I was like, can you double the time? It'll just be me. And I even said, you don't have to fly me first class or anything, but I'd like to be able to just go wherever I want to go, which I'd never done before and not worry about the cost. I won't stay in, I didn't stay in first class hotels or I was like, I probably should have, to be totally honest, but I got 30 days of just traveling around and they covered my expense, which was incredibly nice. But also during that time, I guess the film had wrapped and locked and there was a Writers Guild arbitration for credit at that time. I found out when I got home and I looked at all my mail and it was whatever year it was, early 90s. So it's not like I was online <laughs> checking stuff. I just got home and there was a, oh, there was an arbitration for credit. Oh, I missed the whole date. I never submitted anything. 
then I got a letter, I don't know, a month later saying I was got writer's credit on this. And somebody said to me, one of the other writers, somebody said, I don't think anybody wanted credit and that's why you ended up with credit or something. I think probably in the arbitration, people said, oh, I don't have anything to do with this. So I ended up with credit on this movie that I spent probably four weeks max on, if that much. I liked Ben. He was super nice. I liked Roland. There's another guy, Matt, who worked with him. Really nice guy. Jake never made good on the directing thing. In fact, I brought him the movie that I really wanted to direct. And he was like, well, this doesn't feel commercial enough. I was like, that's why I made afraid, you know? But whatever. And it wasn't. The movie ended up getting made years and years later. And it wasn't commercial. So he was right about that. But yeah, so that was how I got involved. And that was my experience. At the end of the day, I, I wish I had been aware of what was happening and paid more attention. And my brain, I didn't think about things like arbitration or credit. I didn't think that was even going to happen because now I'm a credited writer on this movie that maybe like 15% of my stuff. But as a credit, I, I've developed this relationship with that other me that's walking around that is the person who has credit or blame or some combination. Because I have all the movies like that. And I don't, I don't really, it's like I don't know that person, but we have a lot in common that me, the Ed Solomon of credit on this movie, you know, yeah, I worked on it. That guy gets credit. There's probably four movies that I have credit on that were failures in my mind. Some are my fault. Like I didn't get the script right. Some are someone else's fault. Some, most of them are blend in the middle. And you take those lumps there painful. And I've got some movies that are complete disasters that I had high, high hopes, 100% my fault. Like I put everything into it. There are movies that I have credit on that I I don't deserve. Like I, I think Charlie's Angels is one, which I'm credited with, but I really think the bulk of the work was done by other people. I was the first, actually Ryan and I were the first writers on that. I think there were 18 or 19 writing writers or writing teams on after us. And to me, the great stuff in that movie is Ryan Rose stuff and John August stuff. And I know the movie was successful and I know critics liked it, but I don't deserve the credit for that. They do. And then there are movies that I've done a ton of work on where I'm uncredited and that's the way it is. It's just part of the job of doing that kind of little script doctory stuff. So I've a long time ago come to realize that you have very little control over the result as a screenwriter of what happens after you turn it in, unless you're working very closely with a f director or you're directing. Yeah. And so the only thing for, for me to focus on is what do I do day by day, moment by moment, which is try to get the script as good as I can make it and really work hard on that and try to be a better writer at the end of the process and try to give a script that is my all. It's the best I can do. And then move on and focus on what I have control over, which is how hard I work, how much I work on myself as a person and as a writer. Screenwriter, Jim Genuine. I was not a big fan of the movie. It's sometimes hard when you work on something and have a certain vision, and then another filmmaker comes along, and you don't want to work for a year and a half on something you don't believe in. So, so I'm a big fan of our script. I think it's still funny. It still holds up. Fred Caruso. I was very happy with the film. Sorry it didn't do the kind of business we thought it was going to do. But again, you can't judge it and you do the best you can and you hope it works. David Snyder. 
because of what happened on the film and the way it was perceived and the way it was presented, I just think that it could have been really great. If they would have stuck with Dick and Ian, they would have stuck with their script and the picture wouldn't have gone to Disney, it would have gone to someplace, I don't know, Columbia Pictures, Sony, anyone else, it would have been like a dark Batman movie. A lot more funny, very sexual, very, very kind of crazy. Jeff Ryan, author of Super Mario, How Nintendo Conquered America. There is a very easy way of telling what Nintendo felt about the movie of Super Mario Brothers, which is that there have been no movies since then based on any of their properties. There have been Pokemon films, but Nintendo does not fully own Pokemon. And they did allow Bowser to show up in a cameo in Wreck-It Ralph, but that is it.